in one single-tiered list. I'm your host, Josh Doller, and joined with me today is the festive Jared Richard. Jared, how you doing? Uh, I, uh, 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 I, not that festive, I'm gonna be real. <laughs> <laughs> I wore, I wore my festive best. I, I'm wearing a, uh, stocking cap with a little, a little... With a little pom-pom? With a little pom-pom on the top, and a, uh, soccer, a British soccer team Christmas jumper. It's it's good. It's, it's a very good, look. good. My favorite thing about this Christmas jumper that I have is it was a gift of a team that someone was trying to buy a different team and got them confused. Oh no! <laughs> like so, somebody was buying you a sweater for a different soccer team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were like, "Oh, what's that team? It starts with a W." So this is one for AFC Wimbledon, which like I'm a f- I'm not like a hardcore fan of, but I appreciate. I like the team. <laughs> I like um, them as a concept. Yeah, as a concept. Like it's not one of those like I need to see every single game and what the score is. But right. I I am not offended by owning this, but yeah, they were looking for one that uh, is actually owned by uh, Rob McElhenney and uh, Ryan Reynolds now. It's called Wrexham. Oh. It's a in the middle of Northern Wales, uh, like fifth tier in, in English soccer soccer team, and they're like, "Ah, oh, Wrexham, that's that's the one." Wimbledon, it's because they were so close. But yeah, so it was a complete mistake. But I, I I do like it a lot. It's very fun. It is. It's a very bright and. Uh, I, I I really appreciate the Santa Claus going over right? this, the the uh, oh, what do they call it on Cinema Sins? The Bruce Almighty Moon. Yeah. <laughs> yes, the Bruce Almighty Moon. Yeah. And so this is Tape Makers, and you can find it uh, anywhere that your local delicacies send out podcasts. You know, the app, Apple Podcasts. If, you, if you're hearing us telling you about this, you've probably already found it. We're on Google Play, <laughs> or Spotify, anywhere you find podcasts. And the reason I'm telling you this is so you can tell your friends, hey, just go down to your local deli, grab a number. And then, be, <laughs> and then they'll just be like, yeah, tape makers, here we go. Num- number three, here you go. This is number nine, though. This is number nine. We're on We're on episode nine. We made it. Uh, is this what making it looks like? I think this is what making it looks like. I'll drink to that. Hey, which also we are drinking because uh, your work is getting hectic because you guys are about to soft open and then full open. Yeah, we're about to soft open, then erect open. Uh, <laughs> that was terrible. I'm sorry. Uh don't worry, I got a dick joke for the intro in a, in a bit anyway, so... Excellent. <laughs> uh, I guess we have a theme tonight. Uh, yeah. Uh, three days. We have three days to be ready for our soft open, which is a comedy show. Okay. Um, this this episode almost certainly will come out after that Definitely, uh, definitely will. I don't have time to put it up before three days from now. <laughs> I don't have time to edit it before three days from now. I barely <laughs> had time to do it tonight. Yeah. Um... Yeah, we're we're in like a mad dash right now. There's just a a lot of stuff that uh, it just didn't it, it wasn't finished before now, and now it needs to be finished. Got uh, well, I mean, it's nice when you're actually working with the deadline though, because then instead of this, like, well, eventually we'll get this done. We're like, oh, right, we have to get it done right. by this. Date. Especially because one of my bosses is a little little bit of a perfectionist, and he'll he's mm. very aware of this, and so there are a lot of things that. Uh, 
you know, every, everybody else involved would kind of be like, this is fine. This is good enough. And he's right. like, no, it's not. Gonna, let me just spend another hour, like, tweaking it. <laughs> like, uh, but now it's like, no, we don't have time for that. We just have to finish the things. It, now it's measure twice, cut once instead of measure 15 times, and then remeasure <laughs> and then cut, and then remeasure and then recut. Well, the the this venture has been more like uh, measure twice, cut once, pull your hair out. Measure three times, cut once, grit your teeth, measure again, then trim it, then it'll fit. <laughs> there we go. Hell yeah. Well, it, it, we had to delay by a, a day or two because for recording because of all that, and it was actually probably yeah. better for all of us because I went to the um, Portland Timbers local soccer team. Mm. They were in the championship game against New York City FC. They lost the Timbers lost, which is fine, but it was literally the like most impossible ticket to find. They were going for like four to five hundred dollars for like the Whoa! cheapest seats. Yeah, because f- MLS, which is the Major League Soccer, which Timbers are a part of, is a clown show. Oh. It's an actual clown show. So their official ticketing partner for the entire league is SeatGeek, which I don't know if you know what SeatGeek is. I it's a, a reselling. It's basically scalping online. That's like oh. what they do. So to get tick the official tickets to this championship game, the first championship game that's been in the city of Portland in any sport, uh-huh. or at least major league sport, since the early 90s, you had to buy them through SeatGeek. Oof. Big oof. So automatically, a bunch of bots. and So yeah, tickets were going for crazy money. I got, I was able to get one at face value. Big shout out to David for hooking me up with someone who got a ticket and then wasn't able to go. So I went. Wow. Um, and it was an amazing experience. One of the, the So like you fully did not expect to, to be able to go to this. and like Friday, or so the game was at noon on Saturday. Friday at 10 o'clock, I did not have a ticket. Wow. Yeah, and then Friday by 10, 30, 11, I had a ticket. That's got to be like the sickest come-ups I've ever heard. Yeah, it was pretty fantastic. So I went and stood in line uh, on Saturday when it was raining sideways um, and a windstorm. Started standing in line at 7.30 Mm -hmm. to get in the doors at 10 for a game that started at 12.30. Oh, man. Uh, And during this entire thing, you know, it's, it's not run by the team, it's run by the league. So they were doing their whole... Got to get everyone in the stadium hyped for this championship game, which you would think they wouldn't have to think about hyping up a crowd at a championship game to get loud. Right. But they decided, you know, we need to create an atmosphere just in case it doesn't happen. Uh-huh. Portland is known for having the, the loudest, craziest atmosphere in the league in general, because um, it's in an old hundred year old former like baseball stadium converted to a soccer stadium, like uh-huh. just a just a weird old place. Um and every so there was these two MCs who I bless their hearts. They were doing they were doing their job, but every single time they got on the microphone to try to hype up the crowd, the what's called the Timbers Army, like the loudest they sing the entire time. Fan fans in the section which I was sitting in, right? Um, the Timber stands. Yeah, the Timber stands. Uh, so Timbers Army w- started singing a a song that they usually sing to opposing uh, fans who show up, uh-huh. which is uh, "We Are the Timbers." Or- Army, oi, the green and white army, we're the Timbers army, who are you? To the MCs? To the MCs. Brutal. As loud as they could. And this was just pregame. And so, obviously, they MLS was like, we need to make this a big spectacle and whatnot. So they brought in a 25-foot-tall inflatable 
version of the championship cup that people were going to win to inflate and put in the middle of the field in the middle of one of the worst wind storms I can remember. Ooh, like wee. Th- this was Saturday morning when like branches were, you know, like right going to. And so it was a, it was our very <laughs> quick aside. Our yeah. house, uh, because of those strong winds has shifted, uh, slightly. Yeah. Uh, like it, it was, uh, Ivory said that she was upstairs in bed and could feel the house swaying in the wind. Yeah, so it was... Uh, our front door doesn't properly lock anymore unless Fuck. you, like, unless you like put your body weight on the That's door. That's not good. Yeah, it's not good. So those were the winds they were trying to inflate. A 25-foot-tall, inflatable, like, basically just a, a wavy arm to man without the, the holes that let them do the wavy thing. Like that's, Without the thing that makes it interesting. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so they were doing this for 25 minutes, trying to get it up. And you just saw it from across the field. You just saw it go up and almost get there and then go to the other side and then get up and almost and then go to the other side. So I was all most of us were just like, well, they're just going to give up on this, obviously. No, they got it up for like three seconds. They're like, all right, cool. We got to wheel it out to the center now because we're about to start everything. It gets to the center. It's up for a little bit, and then it starts to go, and it starts to go, and everyone in the crowd is just like, ah, uh, uh, and then it falls, and then breaks, and you oh. just see it deflate. Oh, man. And it was beautiful, because then everyone just started chanting, get that shit off the pitch <laughs> at it. Uh, there's something beautiful about being surrounded by 25,000 people all chanting the same thing at an inanimate object. <laughs> that it, we all just think is dumb and you know so a bunch of uh jokes at don garber who's the commissioner about you know garber just couldn't just couldn't keep it up you know it's really hard it's really hard to keep it up sometimes uh just when you think it was up it was back down <laughs> and there's my dick joke for the intro excellent yeah so then it, uh i yelled for yelled and sang at the top of my lungs for like three hours straight mm-hmm. uh didn't they didn't win but one of the most satisfying Soc- soccer or sports moments in my entire life happened during that game uh so i'm fine with that it was a literal literal last second kick they got a goal to send it into extra time wow like l- literally there was four seconds left on the added time yeah of of regulation so beautiful experience but man i could not talk until <laughs> yesterday <laughs> It was a lot of like, hi, how's it? Oh. Yeah, so, you know, standing shoulder to shoulder to 25,000 people all yelling and screaming while masks are on are going to be a great, it was a great rehearsal for me because I, the day after Christmas, I'm going on a train ride for 100 hours round trip to Chicago. Wow. So I'm very excited for it. But the more and more I think about it, the more and more I'm just like, oh, that's going to be me around a lot of a lot of people who think going on a train ride is fun. And those people are fucking weirdos. I, I should know. I think going on a train. You, you should know because you're one of them. <laughs> yes. Oh. No, I'm one of them, too. Trains, yeah. trains are neat. Trains are neat. Yeah. So uh, so it's uh, 45 hours to Chicago. So in the night in Chicago, 45 hours back. That's what does that translate to in days? That's like a day and a half so I, each way. Uh, uh, almost two days. Almost two days. I leave Salem at like ten, twelve thirty, something like that. Uh-huh. Then leave Portland at two thirty, and then get to Chicago uh, at around two thirty. But that's Central Time, so plus two hours. So yeah, basically two whole days. Each direction. E- each direction. 
Damn. So I'm very excited, though, because there's going to be so much of that trip where I'm just not in cell reception. Right. So it's just going to be nice to just be like, no one can talk to me yeah. for a while. And bring, bring a couple books and a notebook. And Oh, yeah. Bring a few books, laptop, uh, notebook, camera, obviously, because right. going through the Rocky Mountains and, and all that. And then I will get to check off North Dakota and Minnesota off my list of places I have traveled through at the oh, very least. Yeah. You know, those, those very uh, scenic places, North Dakota. I literally can't picture North Dakota in my head other than snow. <laughs> Fargo. That's, a, yeah, that's Fargo. what I got. Yeah, snow. Yeah. And dead bodies. Oh, well, obviously. <laughs> obviously. Snow and a wood chipper. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> and William H. Macy saying, you betcha. Oh, you betcha. Um, well, uh, speaking of uh, music... Oh, yeah, is that what we're doing? We're speaking of music? Yeah. Well, I mean, if I need to fall asleep, maybe I will, uh, to block out all the rest of the noise, I'll put on our first album, Loveless by My Bloody Valentine. Oh, wow. He's got takes. We'll get to it. We'll, we'll get, get to it. it. Yeah. Uh, so, My Bloody Valentine, Loveless by them. Uh, it was released November 11th in 1991. It was their second studio album. Uh, they did release uh, two EPs in between their first album and their second album. Uh, so their fourth release overall, mm -hmm. I believe. All right. So the people, the big players, the people who are My Bloody Valentine, which they're an uh, Irish-English rock band. I didn't know if you knew that. They're, I did not. They are UK and I Ireland, which is not UK. It's not UK. I promise. All right. Uh, so here's where the Irish comes in. Colm O'Koskid. Mm. <laughs> Colmo uh Koisog. It's the best I got. Call call Colm O Colm O uh C I C I S O S O with the um Umlaut? Not an Umlaut, the, the um Tilde? Not a Tilde. Yeah, yeah no, but the dash to the right over it. Yeah. That's got a name. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, Colm is what we'll go with forward. He uh, was drums and uh, samples for the keyboard. Okay. And also drum samples, which we'll get to mm -hmm. more later. Um, Belinda Butcher, uh, yeah, uh, did vocals and backing guitar, rhythm guitar. Uh, Debbie Goog is bass, kind of, which we'll get to. Uh, and then Kevin Shields was guitar, vocals, and sample, uh, more samples. Mm -hmm. Um so, th this is known as one of the more contentious recording sagas of uh, an album, especially in the in the '90s. It cost a quarter of a million euros at the time Whoa. to record. They used 19 different studios, and the reason that they would move studios is because they would show up for like a day or something, do some work, and then. Um, Kevin would decide for whatever reason that that studio wouldn't work for him. So he'd move somewhere else. Okay. It took them from February in 1989 to September in 1991 to record. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That sort of, uh, puts the album in a different light <laughs> yeah. to me, to be honest. <laughs> uh, the label, uh, creation labels thought it would take five days. Oof. Yeah. 
Wow. This album almost bankrupt that record studio. And there's some, obviously, people have different opinions on what actually happened. The record label is like, yeah, no, it costs like around that much. And it, it did almost bankrupt us. And then uh, Kevin is just like, I don't know what they're talking about. We, the only thing that costs money to the record label was like 20 grand. And then we did all this. Kevin's one of those eclectic artists, you could say. Right. Somebody Um, who, uh, I gotcha. He decided that he was going to record all of the guitar and all of the bass on the album. Ah. There's about 20 people listed as engineers. He only allowed two engineers to actually do any work with them. Everyone else was either there just to hit a button or go get them some coffee or tea during it because he didn't trust them. But he still had them in as credits because they're like, well, if anyone just showed up and helped us in any way, shape, or form, you should be on the credits. All right. But he's, yeah, so he only trusted two engineers to to touch the entire thing. Okay. Um. Let's see, what else happened? So, according to Kevin, they didn't earnestly start recording anything until about spring of 1990, and that's when they recorded the material that went on the two EPs in between the albums, uh-huh. and then they toured the EPs, and then they went back to recording um, in later ni- 1991, and that's why he said it took so long for them to record, because they like started, and but didn't really like it, and then all that, and he also said... That they would take month-long gaps before touching song in between touching songs, where my bloody Valentine Kevin Shields is a very influential guitarist, specifically when it comes to using alternative tunings. Uh-huh. But they would go so long in between recording songs that he would forget what tuning each song was in. Oh my god! Like that's how. Like yeah. Um, and he said, you know, that the drums and guitars were done in like late '89, and then they added the bass in '90, and then they did the vocals in '91. And so that's why it took so long. So there's a lot of different opinions on on what was going on during the recording process. Mm-hmm. And I think the weirdest thing that I found in in doing the research for this was that when they laid down the vocal tracks, they wouldn't allow the sound engineers to see them sing or hear them sing. Okay. They put up a curtain in the recording booth. And the only way that the engineers, the sound engineers would know if they took a, if they had a good vocal take was they, they would just, after they were done, they would just open the door and and stick their thumb up at the door and be like, we got it. And when they knew it was a bad take, they would just see the needles stop going. And then they would know (laughs) that they would have to like restart the take. Um, Also, uh, Apparently, they didn't really have a plan going in with the lyrics. Uh-huh. Again, this is disputed by multiple different people. Uh-huh. The sound engineers say um, that Kevin and Belinda would go in, they'd record the vocal track, and then Belinda would come back, listen to what they had just sung, and write down the words that she thought that they had just sung. As, like, what the actual lyrics are. Uh-huh. Kevin's take on it was that they would spend eight to 10 hours the night before writing the lyrics and, and then going in and recording it. Uh-huh. So there's, <laughs> there's a lot going on uh, with this entire thing. Um, obviously it sounds like it was a nightmare and multiple people wanted it to jump ship towards the end. Like e- even the record label yeah. was pretty close to jumping ship at the very end. 
hot damn that sounds like a nightmare yeah it does uh one last little bit of nightmare oh oh, it keeps going sweet um the album was mastered on a machine that had been used to cut together dialogue for movies in the 1970s and hadn't been really, really used for a whole lot since then it threw the entire album out of phase and so then Kevin was able to put everything back together by memory. But it took five days when usually mastering takes like a day. I, uh, I, 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 I've been quiet through a lot of this. Yeah, no, go, 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 go. I, I just need to describe that I, I've been making the most disturbed faces. You seem mortified. Uh, yeah, I like just... Uh, uh, I've got I've got words to say about all this. Do you want me to keep talking about not drama so you can compose yourself? Yeah, go go okay, ahead. Here's, keep talking here, about not drama. Here's the not drama. Um, so this entire um, album was recorded in mono because Kevin wasn't a big fan of recording in stereo. He thought you could pull too many studio tricks in stereo. So he wanted to record it all in mono. And it also helped with the sound that they were going for which was a um, just a wall of sound a little bit more. Um, uh-huh. And that's easier to accomplish in mono because everything is almost everything in this album is, is center. Right. There's, there's no panning going on. Um, none of the modulation comes from pedals outside of some EQ pedals and mm-hmm. then sampling um, distorted guitar with feedback and stuff like that. But for the guitar, the actual guitar sound itself, it's all um, Kevin Shields glide guitar technique, which he actually invented, which is playing with the tremolo arm in your hand while you're while you're while you strum while you strum. You he, yeah. Yeah. So that's all of the um, modulation sounds that are coming from the guitar come from that. Right. There, specific, there are definitely yeah. some tracks where that it's very clear that that is what is happening. Yeah. But then um, throughout the rest of every other guitar track which he there's not that many layers he said you know there people would be surprised how little amount of layers there actually are uh-huh. um because this is a shoegaze album it is like the one of the original shoegaze yeah, the, albums the original shoegaze um and the only other thing that he really did as a as a trick as a guitar trick was to get something that sounds like a wah pedal uh he used um graphical eq pedals to accomplish that. Um, and he said that after recording the track, he would bounce it to another track through a parametric equalizer, which then he adjusted the EQ levels manually. Mm-hmm. And he said that he could, when he was asked if he could achieve that effect more easily using a wall pedal, he said in attitude, um, an attitude towards sound. Yes, but not an approach. So like, yeah, technically he could. Okay, but he didn't. He didn't. I'd want like to, to pause for a second. Yeah, okay. So, th- so to do what was basically a wah pedal effect. Uh huh. He bounced a take to a parametric to, EQ to a parametric EQ and manually adjusted the EQ and then mixed that back. Yes. You use that take back in. This is the same person who said, I don't want to record in stereo because you can get away with too many studio tricks that way. Yeah. yeah. I. 
the question that I just asked summarizes pretty concisely the way I've felt this entire time as you've been describing the, <laughs> the journey that was recording this album. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. No, I, I, I tend to agree with you. Uh, the only other real thing is that almost all of the drums are samples because, uh, column had a pretty debilitating, debilitating injury Uh during most of this. So he couldn't play drums. So what he did is he made samples, uh, drum samples of everything he knew he could play of drum patterns. He knew he could play. Mm -hmm. And then they played those, um, except for two songs, only shallow and touched are the two songs that he actually played drums live on. But everything else is drum sampled. Interesting. Yeah. I uh, could could kind of pick up on that a bit on on some of the tracks. Right, yeah. Uh, there are quite a few tracks where the drums are mixed really fucking quietly. Yeah, and uh, I think that comes from the fact that it was a sample. Yeah. <laughs> I think sure. that makes a lot of sense when, when you know that going into it. So, yeah, th- that's kind of the... The background, you know, obviously these lyrics are deliberately obscure and they like the fact that no one knows what they're singing. Um, Kevin, at one point, said it'd be a fun thing for him to do to put on the official My Bloody Valentine website his rankings of people's interpretations of what the the actual (laughs) lyrics are based on how good they are. Like not how accurate, but how like interesting they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the background going into this. What do you think? What do you think of the album, especially after learning all this stuff? Well, how about, how about I offer two opinions? My, my opinion before learning all of this stuff was that this is an okay album. It's and and by okay, I just mean that like, there's nothing particularly bad in it there are some things that uh, i could easily point to and be like yeah why do they repeat the same riff for like five straight minutes in this one song right with nothing else going on or why is this mixed so wacky like why do the drums sound like non-existent uh all this stuff there's also nothing (sighs) there's not much in this album that i feel like justifies its existence oh okay uh like there are definitely a couple of tracks that i like and that's about it. The rest of it is just like, you know, I'm. It's not like if I walked into uh some some situation and this song and any song from this was playing, I'd be like, man, I can't believe they're fucking playing this right now or whatever. Right. Yeah. It's. It, but there's nothing here that makes me want to come back to this album, and nothing that made me like. There's nothing that jumped out at me as particularly interesting. Okay. Um. Uh, which might have been different when this album came out. Uh, after learning all of this stuff about it, (laughs) it's like, wow, you, like, you, you, you went into this with this level of pretentiousness. You went into this, (laughs) you went into it with this level of like, I need, I need absolute control over the the process of making this. While at the same time you were contradicting yourself about what does or doesn't count as a studio trick and that you, you, uh, have a difference in attitude between a wah pedal and an EQ pedal that you literally can't have anybody perceiving you while you sing these lyrics that you probably just made up on the spot. Like, listen, if you're writing songs like 10 hours before you go into the studio, they're not going to be good lyrics. Like, I don't give a fuck who you are. You're not writing good lyrics 10 hours before you're going in the studio. At the very least, you're writing lyrics that you don't actually feel. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, 
like you it it's wild <laughs> the discrepancy between like the level of of uh of bullshit committed <laughs> uh in the process of recording this apparently compared to what the end result is like holy shit <laughs> that hurts me <laughs> You want something else that might hurt you? Please hurt uh, me more, Josh. Before they recorded the vocals, they didn't name the tracks. So they were just like, yeah, the 12th track on the album is just called tra- track 12. So they had, wait, they had like the track listing? Yeah, they knew which song They was knew in, which songs were in which order they before had, they had a, but, a lyrics or like meaning or anything to yeah, the songs. Why yes. didn't they just record an instrumental album? Well, I mean, they kind of did, honestly. Yeah, the vocals like, are, are more just there as an instrument. I know. I mean, that's like, if you're making up the lyrics basically on the spot and like, it, and the like the vocal melodies are nothing to write home about for sure. Like, why even fucking bother with it? Especially if you're that self-conscious about your singing or, or, or like, see, that doesn't even hit me as like self-consciousness. Cause like, if you're recording in a studio, like you can't decide that you're going to record your voice in a studio if you're that self-conscious about your singing. Yeah, I don't think it was self-consciousness. I think it was just a weird, just a weird like words. like some. Yeah. May, I I could maybe give you like uh the maybe if the performance that you were trying to capture was that of what it feels like to to sing isolated versus singing in front of people like right you know being being perceived does affect how you act and i could see that sort of feeding back into a vocal performance right but also at the same time uh you're a music performer like <laughs> This is what you do. Um, and even if your justification for it was that you were trying to capture this isolation energy, like this album is not good enough to justify that. Like, <laughs> well, also, I think I think Kevin Shields is just kind of a massive uh, tool. That's kind of what I'm getting at. Uh, another reason why is because My Bloody Valentine is notoriously a loud band live. Uh huh. Their shows would regularly hit 130 decibels. Oh, so the audiences probably couldn't hear the vo- vocals anyway. And, and he kind of said that he enjoyed seeing the people go through the stages of like, yeah, it's this song is really good at this volume for the first minute. And they're like, oh, wait, what the fuck is happening in the second minute? And then in the third minute. Like, he enjoyed seeing people go on that roller uh-huh. coaster of pain. Huh. They, they, were, they were threatened to be sued for musical, like, uh, criminal negligence over the sound of some of their stuff. Because they would, on one of their songs, they would turn it into a 30-minute long song with, like, 25 of that minute just being loud white noise. Torture, baby. Torture. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> torture, <laughs> motherfucker. Torture. Uh, no, I think all of what you said makes total sense. I can't tell if I love this album or hate this album. Oh, I'll tell you. You don't love this album. No, I no, I, <laughs> I legitimately don't know if I think this is a fantastic album or a bunch of bullshit. Right. Like, it is, it is so 50-50 to me. And every single time I listen through it, I fall on the other side, like once one side or the other, but it's never consistent. Uh huh. Um, 
I I like the fact that it's kind of a sonic cacophony of sound at points. For sure, there are definitely some some concepts like in terms of like uh, to pull to quote Adam Neely quoting someone else musicking like right yeah, yeah. <laughs> the 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 way you the way you perform or listen to music like yeah there's definitely some interesting ideas that went into the decisions that they made. Uh, <laughs> to to pull it back to last week talking mm. about uh pure comedy i just don't think that it was implemented well right sorry yeah. i didn't mean to step on your no, uh, overall fine. take no you're fine um i i like a lot of the guitar and bass work in in this entire album i do like the fact that they decided to not have drums on a few tracks i thought uh-huh. for an album that is mostly like loud in your face noise for a lot of it the fact that they're able to achieve that without the drums in there as well is is pretty good accomplishment overall uh-huh. um i think the guitar i so this is why is that a lot of the riffs and a lot of the sound is just going from one riff to another riff to to the back to that same riff back to the other riff and it does get a little monotonous at times but also i think that's the goal of the genre for sure no i i'm somebody who appreciates uh, that level of repetition when it's yeah. when it's used correctly, right? Um, you just don't think it's used correctly, yeah. And I, I can't tell if I can't tell if I think it's used correctly or incorrectly every single time because there's some things that, and we'll get into the specific tracks, but specific tracks, I am either like this is fantastically used and it, it really does kind of overwhelm the senses a bit mm-hmm. and puts you in that space, or I'm just like this is boring as fuck. What the hell? I, like see, this, I, I and feel, I don't, I don't know, I don't know how I actually feel. I, about I, I it. feel like when you're implementing that kind of of repetition, it needs to fall at a pretty severe end of of the spectrum of. Right. Is this something you want your audience to hear? Like, like the riff itself, or whatever part you're repeating, like by itself, is it something that you want people to hear and go, "I never want this to end." Right. Like, like this riff is so fun or it's so creative or it's so infectious or mm-hmm. it's so dancey or whatever. Like, I just want it to go on forever. And so you kind of let them think that it will go on forever. <laughs> right. And yeah. it's very enjoyable in that respect. Or uh, something that by itself, before the repetition comes into play, is like, I want this to end now. Right. You know what I mean? Like, or, yeah, no, I like I, where, I get what where you're the, 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 like, uh, sort of uh, torture element of it almost is not coming from the repetition itself, but from the thing that is being repeated as well. Right. To the point that the repetition makes it like, it like dulls it almost. Right. You know what I mean? It's like. And, and the other thing too, is uh-huh. that uh, I think that when you are repeating things, to that degree, it does still need to change over time. I I think I overall agree with you. Mm-hmm. I again, I'm not saying that like I think this is a t- top album that we're talking about here. Yeah, but I I do. Maybe it's the fact that I can't tell whether or not like uh oh why can I not think of the pronunciation of this word like uh autumnal no <laughs> <laughs> Josh is flipping me off right now uh a uh, uh, person who really likes self torture uh Mac, ma, ma, it starts with an M oh uh 
this is groupthink going on right now, where uh, I said one thing and now our brains can't work. They're uh, sadists, uh, masochists. Masochists, yeah. I can't tell. Like, maybe this is like my, like, I can't tell if I'm actually a masochist or not. It's like, I can't tell if I like this album or not. <laughs> like, I think those two things are kind of like, it, right. we're, we're in the Venn diagram where it's a circle right now. Well, uh, so like a good example of something like that, uh, it like the like the sort of masochistic level of mm-hmm. of like, you know, I enjoy listening to this on a masochistic level, or I or I as the songwriter made this repetition thing as like a sadistic thing practically. Okay, uh, is the end of I think I lost my headache by Queens of the Stone Age. Okay, um, yeah, which is this very like uh, honky. Uh, obnoxious horn riff mm. uh, that's uh, very short and and uh, like is it goes on for a very long time, right? Uh, with a uh, horn solo, I'm doing air quotes, right? Uh, that's very avant garde, let's say, for Queens of the Stone Age. Um, that also slowly speeds up as it goes. I see what you're saying. Um, yeah, I, I I wish I could pull out time time uh, uh, stamp time reference of like actually how long, but it's I like I want to say that the song's something like seven minutes long, and the first three minutes of it is just like a normal Queens of the Stone Age song, and then the last four is that, and the yeah. last four is that. Um, and I think that that's a glorious implementation of the sort of like I am doing this to fuck with you. I am doing this to put you in a headspace that is uncomfortable right. and and that makes your skin crawl and makes the back of your neck itch and makes your teeth uh, uh, chatter because you just want it to be over, but it's still going. Okay, but what if that was for 48 minutes straight? And uh, that's this album. No, but that's the thing. <laughs> that's the thing. I don't think that... I think that, um, I think that the riffs that are so heavily repeated are not... Of I are not of a level of like this is a really good riff and I'm so mm. glad that it goes on for this long or of like this is such an obnoxious thing and and the intention is clearly that they're they're trying to get me to feel this right. way. Well, let's talk about some of those riffs then. Let's get into the songs. Um, we're gonna start at the start because if you don't start at the start, you don't start at all. If you don't, it's true. That, yeah. mm-hmm. Only shallow. Um, I really like the intro drums and the intro guitar riff, the the riff that is happening when there's not vocals yeah. going on. I really think that's one of the better guitar riffs in the entire album. Definitely. It's also, uh, I, I have, I remember listening to, I think you got this CD, or maybe I got this CD and then I shared it with you a long time ago. I think yeah. I was like 18 or 19. I think I found it and then shared it with you. Uh yeah, I I remember listening to this song specifically and thinking that this riff was really fucking cool. Right. I still think um, it holds up. Definitely, it still holds up. I never noticed before that it actually changes, and I think randomly. It do- Yes, every single time, it's just kind of whatever he was feeling is, is yeah, kind of the, the vibe t- the I'm getting about it. Yeah, the timing slightly changes. Like a horde of elephants. Yeah, um, I up until we had listened through this time to actually talk about, it, I never realized how repetitive the bass and the rhythm guitar was, and how much that adds to it. Because that just wailing 
um, especially in the intro, because it's just a snare. And you can hear this is one of the two tracks where it's live drums, and you can really feel it. Mm-hmm. You can really, really feel that this was uh, live played well, drums. See, I, w- I was about to say that I th- there's a good handful of songs on this album that I feel like would have benefited from a different approach to uh, the studio engineering. Probably. I, I like... The vault- I would say the majority of this album actually does not hit as hard as I feel it should. It's very, it's a very quiet album for how loud it is. If that makes any sense, yeah. Um, Which I, I, I actually like that a lot. I like the fact that you kind of keep wanting to hit the volume up on it. Personally, I mean, I, I'm sure that uh, with the level of input they had, this this album was mixed and mastered with the intent that you would blast it. Yes. Um, th- but. I don't want that. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Um, yeah. Also, you can uh, you, the amount of like decibel change that happens in between that very dreamy, very ethereal, quiet. You you can hear a lot of the glide guitar happening mm-hmm. with the uh, cleaner electric in the court chorus verse, whatever we want to call song structure. Mm-hmm. Um, to then the interlude i guess we'll call it mm-hmm. like the decibel change when they add they add more stuff is also one of those things where it's like you i don't know if that works or not but maybe that's what you're going for and i think that's where so much of my push and pull on whether or not i think this is a great album or not comes from it's like this is a weird choice but i kind of like it but also it's a choice i don't know if i would have gone for but maybe that's what you're trying to do. so i don't know um i do think it could have used a one more mode of expression because it only has those two that we just listened to. Yeah. It needed, I think it needs one more. I think it just, it just needs one more different musical expression in some way, shape or form. I, uh, I don't know if I'd agree with that. I, I, I honestly think that, uh, that if this song was produced differently, that it would, it, it, if, like that snare sounds really thin to me. Like it doesn't. Mm. Uh, I, I'm not a big fan of the snare on this track, and I don't. Uh, the drums uh, in general the, feel the, very small. The very mono approach doesn't work. Like I just, I don't think it works very well for right. for like the actual for the songs. Um, I, I like the mono approach personally. I think it works. Um, mm. I I do like the fact that it is a. Again, I think. I like the fact that it's kind of an attack on the senses a little bit, which I think they get better with the mono approach than if they were to pan it to both sides and use stereo mm-hmm. a little bit. So I, I, I do like that part about it, but I understand where you're coming from, where it, they definitely could have used more input from people who are professional sound engineers. Right. Maybe <laughs> instead of dismissing them to fetch coffee. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Tea and biscuits. But I think overall it's a good start. I think it's it's definitely a good start to the album. One of the higher points on the album, and I think, is also one of the more poppy songs on the album, as well. More radio friendly, maybe not poppy, but radio friendly. Uh, yeah, it's definitely got it's definitely more approachable than than a lot of the album. Um, just because it it does have clear defined sections. Yes, it has lyrics. Yes, whether or not those lyrics mean any fucking thing at all, but you can uh, follow, or you can understand them. But you can follow the the at least the lyrical melody pretty easily right um 
yeah, that that definitely makes it much more approachable and listenable than than other tracks on the album. Yeah, um, I want to talk about the next track, Loomer, because I think this is a great example of shoegaze. Shoegaze. The shoegaze that happens on this album. Uh huh. Um, I like the. This is one of the songs on the album that doesn't have any drums on it, which I really like. Mm-hmm. I really like that uh, take on it. You can really hear all the samples and the loops that they're using in the background behind uh, the driving guitar that they got going on, and I think that is also pretty well done overall. Like the amount of layering that they're able to create with few guitars, the driving guitar is a pretty clean electric that is definitely compressed and has a lot of mm-hmm. uh, tail on the end of it. But and then the bass also hit, hitting up to the higher register as well. I, I don't know. I think it does a much better job of transporting you somewhere than only shallow does. Which I think is what they are attempting to do with the majority of the album, whether or not yeah. they it succeeds. I don't know if the I, I don't know if the product how I don't know how much the production decisions uh add to that. Um I think that the uh, chords that they're using and the the melody like I, I I think that musically it's a uh it's a nice song that that definitely is good for sort of taking you elsewhere. Right. Um produced it's got it's got a very kind of nostalgic uh kind of wistful uh, but not particularly happy. Yeah, overall sure. feel to it. Uh, which is great. Yeah. Um, I think that is, the production fucking sucks on it. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <laughs> uh, what do you want to talk about next? Um, A- any any well, song specifics stand I, out to you? So, uh, as we talked about previously, I've been very busy in the last week. Right. Um. So I don't have notes, nor do I remember any of the track names. <laughs> no. Yeah. Why would you? Um. Do you want to talk about the instrumental? I think that's the only one before the next one I got. Um. Sure. Let's talk about the instrumental. Okay. I. It's fine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> um. <laughs> it's like it's less than a minute. I don't really feel like it's super worth talking about unless you got stuff you want to say about it. Um. I. Just again, I think that it would be more effective with a different approach to the production. But like, it's it. I like it. I think it's enjoyable. I think that it's certainly not a full song's worth of material. I think one of my bigger issues with it is that it's the third song. Like that just feels very early in the album to have. Yeah, the that's I, a weird place to put it for I, sure. If it was closer to the middle or even closer to the end, I think it would hit a lot better. But it feels like the album just got going, and then you're hit with this interlude, mm-hmm. and then they don't have another interlude at, right. at any point. I think it was just a poorly placed track. Right. Um, it feels out of place. Uh, also. 
um, because of how lo-fi it is. Yeah, no, uh, for sure. Compared to the rest of the album. And also, this is the only other track that has live perform drums as well Mm -hmm. so it feels different than the rest of the album as well and so the two the only two tracks that um you know you have live drums on are in the first three songs right so it just creates a completely different vibe than the rest of the album goes for as well which i think that was a mistake that that being said i think it is interesting like i i it's definitely i'm glad that it's in the album Mm -hmm. um i i do wish that it was a bit more cohesive in terms of how it fits in the album. Yeah. And I, uh, yeah, I, I, I like it. I'm glad it's there. That's all I got about it. Yeah. I, I, I just, I think I just wish it was somewhere else. Yeah. Type thing. Um, the next one I want to talk about is when you sleep, which I think is a certified banger on the album. Um, I think bangers a bit strong. I think this is a, a song that would really have benefited from live drums or better produced samples. One yeah, of the two. I that's definitely my. I mean, I I'd hate for I hate that I keep saying this, but this song would benefit from different approach to production. You would say a, a maybe a different sound engineer or uh, something. Th- this is a hundred percent. Uh, like this full on sounds like stuff that I listened to when I was a teenager. Like right. uh. In, in terms of the way the song feels. The super way... lo-fi, super low production. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I appreciate that about it. Uh, it. It feels like it fits flawlessly in a playlist with, like, Where Is My Mind. Oh, yeah. Um, and, like... All the good 90s alt-rock You know bangers. what? I know what my next uh, album I'm adding to my list is because... Is it this... OK Computer? No, but there's that, that. That's it would fit with a lot of songs from that too, right? Um, no, there's this one song called "Asleep at the Trigger" by a band called Autolux, and I fucking love this song and always have, and I've okay. never listened to the album. I've never heard of that song or that band, so I had I'm I, excited. I had a friend in high school. We would exchange burned CDs, mm. and uh, she gave me one that had that on it, and I was like, "This is like the best song you've ever right." Seen. Well, so the reason I think it's a certifiable banger is that it's a it's very dancey, it's very poppy. It's definitely the most radio friendly song on the entire album. It, yeah, it's the most you want to groove to it song on the album. Um, it it doesn't stay too long either. I think, which is one of the yeah, it doesn't wear out the its album. welcome. Yeah, it, which is one of definitely one of the sins against the album is that it every single song just has the the two different modes that usually plays in and Mm -hmm. it it just goes on like about 30 seconds to a minute too long on every song outside of this one i i think this is the best song on the album yeah i i don't think i'd fight that yeah it's definitely top two for sure yeah i also like the fact that it's a little less noise rock than what we've listened to before Mm-hmm. which is not a bad thing and it's definitely still noisy yeah it's, but it, it's it, definitely the most listenable song on yeah, the album though. for sure it's the most like hey there, there's no sadism in this one no exactly um also, aside from how fucking quietly the vocals are mixed, yeah but, anyway. but i really do like the fact that they use the vocals as in this is the best example i think so far of them using the vocals as an additional musical layer when they're not actually singing because right. the vocal tracks do follow through 
to the instrumentation. I also want to say I love that their voices together. Oh yeah, it's a Uh, really good duet. It's part of it's part of what makes the song have this like sort of uh, timeless quality to it. It's part of part of what makes it feel like something very. uh, I don't know. It just, when I listen to it, I'm like, I'm fucking 17 years old again. Yeah, it, I'm, I'm 16, and like, like thinking that, like, you know, once I grow up and graduate high school, things are gonna get better. Yeah, it definitely has this timeless quality about it. Yeah. I, I, I think, and it's this is my bloody Valentine at its best. I think um, when it comes to writing songs that are listenable, <laughs> you yeah. could say. Um, let's talk about one that is a little less listenable, but I think also pretty good written song which is i only said which is the wah effect that is not a wah pedal right um i like the intro and i do like i do like the sound that he eventually came to whether or not he came to it in a very roundabout fucked up way (laughs) is to be debated but i do like the sound that he's going for i don't dislike the sound i i just uh, think that it's bullshit for him to say I want to record in mono for yada yada uh, but also that yada yada doesn't apply to how I'm going to process my guitar takes listen <laughs> yes um, also I think the bass in the song slaps and I uh, like the fuck. fact that it provides uh, the lead notes I do like the fact that it, it takes the lead and lets the guitar have more of the rhythm as well, I think that is a, a well done choice. It's a little assaulty at times, uh, like with the yeah. amount of distortion and compression and gate. Yeah, and all I that. don't, I don't love the guitar tone uh, at all. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna be real. No, that's fine. Um, I, I like it. I think it works. I, it it definitely is a. It's not an a, enjoyable guitar tone to listen to, but I think for the desired effect that they're going to, which is to overstimulate you with their music it works well see that's the thing is that i don't feel overstimulated i feel like especially like you you know the the clip you played had part of that little the yeah yeah uh that gets repeated it does so long with no change yes Not, and i don't mean that the riff itself doesn't change but nothing in the track changes yes for this very long duration of time that they don't change that they which repeat is it. we we're probably not going to talk about too many other tracks but is a consistent theme throughout the entire album right but i think this is the most egregious example which is one of the reasons why i wanted to point it out um because it it is one of those like well like i said it is aggressive it is kind of an attack against you but i see that's the thing i don't think it's aggressive like that it's a very it's a pretty and nice riff like it i think it fits it fits well it's not out of place and it's very uh like it's a nice sounding riff to right. me. Right. I think for me, when I say aggression, I think the aggression is like that they just keep hitting you over and over and over and over and over and over see, and over and over. See, that's again the with thing. It. Like that, the that riff hits in the same kind of nostalgic, timeless sort of thing that the previous songs we've been talking about have. 
you know? Right. For me, at least. Like, it's it's got a very warm and welcoming quality to it. Mm. And repeating it for minutes on end Doesn't does do not, yeah. neither, neither adds to that feeling nor makes me, like, feel like they're doing it intentionally to make me, like, feel uneasy. Like, they, it's just there because they wanted to repeat it over and over again and it doesn't translate to any sort of emotional response from me all right um i think this is very similar to 10 by pearl jam oh jesus In- <laughs> i almost cracked the neck off of my beer bottle that would have been fantastic and a appropriate response for me bringing up uh that album by that band um in the fact that they were going for a thing and it either works for you or it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Especially at the time where Pearl Jam was going for a modern, more cynical take on the world in a classic rock and roll form where the My Bloody Valentine, I feel like they are going for a we're taking stuff that can feel familiar, normal, even as, as you were describing, um, pleasant to listen to mm-hmm. and just because of the way that they are repeating it over and over and over again, they're attempting whether or not they get there is, is up to personal interpretation, but attempting to get to a point where even if you like the riff, you've heard it so many times, it just earworms its way into you and you just can't even notice it outside of everything else that's going on. Look, this is my problem though, is that after learning everything that you told me about the production of this album, I don't believe that they this band does anything with intention. No, I think it's all <laughs> So here's the thing. You, you know what I'm saying? Like no, I, no. I think they got in the studio and they were like, We want this song to be longer. Should we write another section for it? No. Let's just repeat the best part of the song for several minutes. So I I think everything they did is very intentional. I don't think that their intentions worked, but I think they were very intentional about all no, of them. No, see, this re- th- this reminds me of, like, I've known artists who, like, very clearly uh, don't want to put effort into, and I, I mean, like, visual artists, like painters, mm. who very clearly try to pass off laziness as artistic intent. Okay. Um and like I say this cuz I know them pers- like I like I I've, I've known them personally and like yeah, no, for like, sure for sure like have watched them work and know what it's what goes through their head because they've talked about it openly with me and right. I'm like it's I've seen what you can do. You're capable of 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 painting much more engaging, interesting and good-looking art whether or not you, you know, right, if, yeah. when you want it to be good looking. Uh, and I've watched you make a painting in 10 minutes. Right. And then assign meaning to it after you've done it. Mm. It looks like something you slapped together in 10 minutes and then assigned meaning to. Right. And that's what you you see this album as a little bit, especially that song. But they took, what was it, two years? Uh, two and a half. Two and a half years. Which is... I I understand where you're coming from with that take on everything, but I think I think all of this was in, incredibly intentional. Whether or not it works is different, and obviously it comes across as not being intentional. But I think this is intensely intentional. The entire thing is intensely intentional. Maybe the intent is to confound Josh. 
honestly, probably to an extent. Um, I just want to talk about Sometimes, which is the song that has a bunch of acoustic. Um, the acoustic guitar is kind of leading it. Uh-huh. It's another album that doesn't have drums, which again, maybe I just like the fact that they are able to create such a sonically interesting or diverse or at least loud um, sound without using drums or drum samples. I also really like how this is probably the lowest register that they have for the vocals on the entire album. And I think that works as well. It's very much kind of drawing you in, trying to listen a little bit more, which I think the lackluster production of the entire album, I think that that benefits this uh, track more than the rest of the album. Mm. Um, It's okay. (laughs) That's how I feel about this song. Uh, it's it's, in, it's inoffensive. It's five and a half minutes of the exact sound, exact same sound. So you will either love it or hate it. Yeah, and like, see, there's a difference between like uh, droning the same couple of chords for five minutes versus playing the same riff for five minutes, right? Or singing the same melody for five minutes, right? Um. And yeah, this is this is one of those tracks that's that's just like yeah. If I walked into a room where this was playing, I wouldn't go, "Oh fuck, I hate this song." I would just it just wouldn't it wouldn't register. Phase, it wouldn't register as music. You, <laughs> like you, you know what just, I mean? it, What would happen is you would walk in, it'd be happening, and then like that it would disconnect somehow, and you're like, "Wait, I guess there was music playing." Yeah. Oh, I guess there was music on, and now <laughs> there's not. No, I totally get that. Um. I don't know. I, I, I think I just, I do think it's a little boring, but I did like the fact that it was a different, because usually it's, it, most of the vocals are pretty high in the register towards a more falsetto, whereas this vocal register was a bit lower, mm-hmm. um, much more refined, late, like recluse. I think it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's very it's, quiet. Yeah, it's definitely, it, it, it's a intimate song. Yes. For sure. Like it, the it, most intimate they probably get. Yeah. Um, the only other one I feel like we really need to talk on about is soon, which is the last track on the album. Um, I couldn't for the life of me describe it to you. Well, I, let, don't, know, I don't remember what this song sounds it's okay, like. Cause we can listen to it together. I, this is, this is probably the most, you know what I'm going to say, Josh. Oh, yeah? Guess what I'm going to say. This is the most, uh, this is the most hampered by the production. Oh, yeah. I I feel like this is the song that had the most potential, but the decisions that they made in terms of production and mixing is what fucked it over. Um, 
I think I that, what you're saying. Yeah, I think that the uh, I I think that it's extremely dynamic in terms of the emotional stuff, the mm-hmm. the, the emotion that's conveyed through the music, uh, which is super cool. I yeah. I love how drastically that sort of bouncy uh riff uh in the chorus or right. again, uh instrumental and how how yeah. drastically it changes into the verses or oh, however yeah. you want to call it. I know what you're saying. Um, yeah. The I, yeah, I think that this is the song that had the most potential that just got wasted because they didn't they they I guess intentionally <laughs> decided to make it sound like shit. Yes. Um I think this is the song where the the drum samples, the bass and both guitars are locked in the most. Mm-hmm. I think this is the most complete song on the album. Mm-hmm. I I agree with you that I think it has the most dynamic range, especially emotionally mm-hmm. and everything. I it's a really enjoyable intro as well um because it it does start with a little bit of just the drum sample by itself before everything else comes in this is the longest song on the album but it doesn't feel like it because it's sure, it's yeah. very enjoyable it has a good drive throughout the entire thing it you never feel like it's losing its way just doing a thing I, for no reason i don't I, i'd also like to uh not redact but but uh, uh rescind mm. uh, I don't think that this sounds like shit. No, you're, I think, you're good. I think yeah. this sounds flat and lifeless. And that's how I feel about most of this album, is flat and lifeless. You know what? That's fair. That is that is a very accurate portrayal of the production of this album. I Which think. I think that I, like, especially considering that this band loves to play so loud, apparently, live. Yes. Like, I feel like that betrays their, what the experience of seeing them live would be like. And I, but I don't think that it, uh, that it in, uh, diverse, right. diverges from that, um, enough to like say that the, the intention behind it was to sound mm. and feel different from a live performance by them. I see what you're saying. I, I have no, not watched any live performances or listened to any live performances, but I wonder if it sounds so flat. Because when they do perform live, there is no dynamic range. It is just a full blast, a hundred percent of the time. So, well, see, yeah, I mean, so see, that's what I'm. Maybe su- that's what they're. Maybe that's just their sound is yeah. very flat because it is at twelve that, out of ten every that, all that the is, time. That is what I was trying to get at uh, at the beginning of this discussion. That like that it seems like it's mixed so that you blast it. Like it's it seems like it's supposed to be. Turn your stereo up to eleven and sit in your bedroom. Yeah, no, this is um, this is designed for uh, stoner teens who might be getting into some harder stuff, right? Uh, but that, but but the thing is, like, that's uh, that way of listening to music is not something that I enjoy, nor is it something tailored to, uh, like picking up minute details or pin or picking up you, you know like the it, it's not what interests you about listening to music well i mean no i'm i'm saying that like i'd go so far as to say that like uh you know so we'll say live performance is like watching a stage play okay you have people physically in front of you acting it out Mm-hmm. One time that is not being captured and is never going to be recreated in the exact manner that it is unfolding in front of you ever again. Right. 
And then recording an album is like a movie. Right. And I would say that uh, sitting in your room and diming your stereo and listening to a album that is produced like this to, to that is meant to be listened in that in that mm-hmm. manner is on par with watching a movie on your phone with your volume maxed out and you cupping your hands around both ends of your phone. Okay. Like you're watching Tenet this way and then saying, I can't understand the dialogue. Well, that's a callback, baby. Uh, well, it's, again, as we talked about last week, is that more of a Tenet problem or a me problem? So, uh, But you know what I mean? Like that's, I, I get what you're I, saying, like, yeah. I, I don't think that this is uh, mixed and mastered in a way that... Uh, uh, that that benefits where the music benefits from being recorded. You know what? That's understandable. I completely understand that. It feels like you know what this album feels like production wise hmm. is when you buy a new guitar amp and a new guitar and you're so excited and then you just leave everything on noon and leave the guitar on 10 and the a pickup selector in the middle. And then you just play, and you're like, "Oh, why doesn't this sound unique?" Yeah, or, why doesn't this sound as amazing as the YouTube video yeah, made exactly. it seem? <laughs> yeah, so it, it's it's that exact thing of like, if you don't add any dynamic character to it, yeah, it's not going to sound that interesting, really. But if you ter- take the master volume and turn it all the way up, it's going to sound It'll great. It'll be noise. It'll you're, be noise for sure. Our yeah. brains, when it no, this is a thing when it comes to when it comes to music and mixing audio and stuff, our brains literally perceive louder sounds as being more good. Well, it's the exact up same, to a certain point. Well, but, it's the exact same thing behind like why why hot hot sauce is a thing is because our brains perceive heat as flavor, even if there's not flavor to a certain degree. Right, yeah, it's the same thing. It's it's just what I think so it, so the what we're saying is these guys turn up the heat but don't add a lot of flavor. Hey, there we go. Well, let's talk about uh, what some people thought about at the time when it was first coming out. Um, our first re- contemporary review of Loveless, which again, 1991, they had released one album beforehand. This is before grunge even like blew up and be- became the massive thing of the early 90s. Right. So we're talking pretty pretty late um hair metal t- uh time when, within the um guitar music genre in that in that context i can certainly understand why somebody would listen to this and be like oh yeah this is my thing now yeah so uh deli fidel for an nme gave it an 8 out of 10 at the time and said loveless fires a silver coated bullet into the future daring all comers to try and recreate its mixture of moods feelings emotion style and yes innovations because again this guitar technique was invented by kevin shields on this album Mm -hmm. so this guitar technique had never been heard before um the challenging thing about mbv is the way they force you to trip over yourself with mixed metaphors and worse when trying to quantify them with language huh okay yeah that seems to make about as much sense as the lyrics on this album uh, Ira Robbins for Rolling Stone gave it four out of five stars. And uh, poll quote I took was a challenging storm of bent pinch, undulating volume, and fractured tempos. Love, Loveless has a calm eye at its center 
an intimate oasis from which guitarist Belinda Butcher and Kevin Shields gently breathed pretty tunes into the thick, sweet waves of droning distortion. Despite the record's intense ability to disorient, the real do-not-adjust-your-set stuff. The effect is strangely uplifting. Loveless oozes a sonic balm that first embraces and then softly pulverizes the frantic stress of life. What the fuck is a fractured tempo? Droning distortion. <laughs> I guess. There, there, I, I don't know. I don't remember any tempo changes in, in a song in this album. No, there's I, no <laughs> tempo changes. But I think I, I literally think it's the fact that he's using the tremolo arm. Um, vibrato arm on his guitar randomly throughout when he plays i and the fact that they are sampling um guitar distortion and feedback and and looping that back through yeah there's a difference between timing and tempo though listen there was the it was the early 90s they they were sweet babes they didn't know any better no i i just i'm nitpicking because like it it, like reviews like that drive me crazy where it's just like I'm just, I'm just like, just use words, like use normal words. So you're not like fucking writing poetry here. I just want to know what you think of the album. Well, as, as, as Deli Fidel said, you know, they, they force you to trip over yourself with mixed metaphors and, uh, you know, worse when you're trying to quantify it with language. So every not the time didn't know what the, what the fuck to write about. So they're just like, I, I don't know. These are music terms. Can you quantify, wait, quantify <laughs> with language. You quantify something with numbers. It's. Right? So Heather, <laughs> Heather Ferris for All Music gave it five out of five stars. Isn't Anything, which was their first album, was good enough to inspire an entire scene of My Bloody Valentine sound alikes. But Loveless's great, greatness proved that the band was uh, in 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 intimidable, in intimidable, interminable, in, like in in. Uh, when you imitate someone in in why uh, can i not say that together in no it is you would intimidate someone but you're not you're not able to imitate. do it so in in imitatable in imitatable why can my brain was See, just like, like why would you not... put that word in a review <laughs> inimitatable yeah so loveless is great and it's proved that the band was inimitatable after two painstaking years in the studio and nearly bankrupting their label creation in the process, the group emerged with their masterpiece, which fulfilled all the promise of the previous albums. These glimpses into the band's evolution make Shields' difficulty in delivering a follow-up to Loveless even more frustrating, but completely understandable. The album's perfection sounded Shoegaze's death kneel and raised expectations to the next My Bloody Valentine album to unreasonably high levels. I would just say can't be imitated. Yeah, no, that would make a lot more sense. It flows a lot better. It does flow a lot better. Inimitatable is not a good sounding word. I don't even know if it's a word. Well, fuck those reviews anyway. No, we need to talk about the legacy of this album first. Wait, there's a legacy? There's a legacy of this album. This is seen as the definitive shoegaze album. I need you to show me my legs, you see. I need to show you my legs. (laughs) Um, Pitchfork ranked this the second best album of the 90s. It is is ranked as the 18th best album ever by NEM and the 73rd by Rolling Stone. Chuck Klosterman for Spin had this quote about it. Whenever anyone uses the phrase swirling guitars, this record is why. A testament to studio production and single-minded perfectionism. 
Loveless has a layered, inverted thickness that makes harsh sound soft and fragile moments fast. And Kevin Shields is rated as one of the most influential guitarists of all time. He influenced a bunch of alternative bands in the 90s, specifically Smashing Pumpkins and Courtney Love. Uh, and he is ranked as the 93rd best guitarist out of 100 by Rolling Stone. Now remember, 10 by Pearl Jam. You son of a bitch was ranked as one of the best albums ever as well. So we're kind of in the same ballpark here for you, I think. I will I will take this off your hands and I will go first because I recommended this album. Yeah, please be- do. Because I am so torn by this album. Um, I am going to give this album, we're ranking it out of 17. Mm-hmm. I'm giving this album a... I'm giving this album a 10. I'm going to give this album a 10 out of 17. I think the innovation... That was happening during this time. Uh-huh. The high points are really high for me. The low points are iffy to okay. Um, but, you know, again, just after talking about it and listening to it again, if this was yesterday, three days ago, two days, who knows? It, it might be like a three. But I'm, I'm giving it a 10 today because on other days that I listen to, I'm like, oh, this is one of the top five we've talked about so far. So I think 10 out of 17, I think it is... Higher quality than lower quality overall, but it's definitely not one of the best we've talked about so far. See, even thinking about it in the context of when it was released and how different it sounded. Right. I, I, I keep getting hung up on the production, but like, like the, <laughs> no, you, you, because of like the, the, the meticulousness of it. Yeah. The meticulousness of, of, uh, Kevin Shields of Kevin Shields's decisions, I feel like a lot of them stem from a sort of like hipsterish desire to sound like not like I want to do this because I think it'll add to the emotional content of the music I'm trying to make. Right. Like I don't I don't think it was this is an artistically driven decision. I think it was more like I don't want to sound like the other bands on the radio. I think it wasn't. I personally I think you are correct. But I think also there is this like in artistic intention within there to be like this. Uh, this is the sound I have in my head and I need to get it out. And until it gets out, nothing is going to work. Right. Um, also, My Bloody Valentine did not release any music after this album until 2013. Because, I didn't know that. yeah, because he did not feel like he could write music as good as what he wrote here. And then also he. There's a reason Billy Corgan looked up to him, and Billy Corgan is another known as these like weird idiosyncratic will control and in the entire recording production. Yeah, but Smashing Pumpkins fucking goes. <laughs> You're not wrong. Like you can't, you cannot put like a melancholy on the same level as Loveless. Like, no, and, just, I, and I'm not, and I'm not. But Billy Corgan um, specifically said, I don't remember which one, but he said like one of the songs that he wrote was like, oh yeah, no, I was just doing my bloody Valentine and hoping I didn't get caught. That's fine. Like that. <laughs> no. So, okay. So, so give me, a, give I, me a number. Give me a number here. <laughs> where, where, where you gave are you it a at? 10 out of 17? 10 out of 17. A little bit better than meh. I see. I give this like, a six or seven. You know what? That is higher than I thought you were going to go, bud. 
Honestly, it's higher than I thought I was going to go. Like, I'm, I am honestly taking into context that, like, yeah, this was an important album for right. uh, the people, uh, like, who, like, cared about music at the time. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. Like, I, I get that. Like, it was a very, like, very different thing. Um, and uh, the ambition behind it... Uh, I'm sure that, like, I'm sure at the time it felt a lot more ambitious than it does now. Oh, yeah, no, um, for sure. I, this does not feel as ambitious in 2021, almost 2022. Yeah. As uh, it probably did at the time. So do you want to give it a six or a seven? I'm okay with either. I'll give it a six. You give it a six? Okay, so if we if we split the difference, that's an eight out of 17. Okay. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about that being the the number we go with? Well, I'm not about to bump my score up, so let's see where it lands. Okay. So, uh, if we give it an 8 out of 17, which we figured out how to do math last time. Yeah. Because (laughs) uh, I'm a fucking dumbass. And also, numbers are hard. Numbers are hard, Josh. Uh, So, if we give it an 8... Alright, so if we give it an 8 out of 17... It lands at number 10. Number 10 out of 17. Like, ranking-wise. Uh-huh. The album it would be bumping down is Pure Comedy by Father John Misty. And they go right under Destroyer's Rubies by Destroyer. It's below Pure Comedy, for sure. I I do agree that it is below Pure Comedy. Okay. At least we're on that same page. Would you, would you like to know something that is going to pain you for the rest of your life? I'm going to say that uh, Blood Pressures by the Kills is... Uh, below it. It's going to be right below it. It's yeah. right below it. But that is... You know what? Um, if we ever hit, like, episode 50 or something, or if we ever hit uh, 50, 50 albums we're just on gonna, the list... We're just going to make a list of all of the albums that are not where they should be <laughs> and yeah. revisit them. You know what? That might be a fun um, year anniversary. Yeah, we'll do that. to revisit the list. We'll plan to do that. Yeah. All right. I think that sounds good. All right. So, going in as the 11th best album of all time is Loveless by My Bloody Valentine. Congratulations to all involved. Yeah, no, uh, in today's money, they spent almost half a million dollars producing this album. Wow! No, sorry, not not dollars. Euros. Euros. Which is over half a million. Yeah, that's going to be over half a million dollars. Jesus. Jeez. But... Luckily for us, this does not affect the top five and the bottom five, which we are going to go over right now because it's a new episode. So the best, the top five, the five most important albums, best albums. The, the objectively most good, yes. The objectively most good albums of all time. Uh, starting at number five is The Beautiful Game by Wolfpack. Number four is I Go Missing My Sleep by Wilson. Number three is A Boarding House Reach by Jack White. Number two is Pieces of a Man by Gil Scott Heron, and objectively, the most good album of all time, Eons by Mimicking Birds. Indeed. N- now let's get to the uh, least good five. The uh, most bad. The, the objectively shittest. The objectively most bad albums of all time. Coming in at number five, it is Timing is Everything by Vauxhall Broadcast. Number four. As the Eternal Cowboy by Against Me. Which, I'm sorry, Jake. <laughs> I'm surprised it's been down there so long. Yeah, I, you know, I've been thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that one because, was done dirty by us. Well, 
you know, we were talking about how uh, blood pressure, the reason blood pressures is where it is, mm-hmm. is really because we've reviewed so many Midland albums. That is true. Since then. Yeah. Um, and I was thinking about how I didn't want to put a bunch of albums that I loved on my list because I thought that would make for boring episodes. So I was right. going for albums that I had mixed feelings about myself. Right, right, right. Uh, and I think that's the wrong way to go about it. You know what? I'm going to... Going forward, I'm either trying to knock stuff off of the, out of the top five or add stuff to the bottom five, honestly. I, I'm I'm thinking that I'm going to do, like, mostly that. And, uh, like, I'll do four that I'm aiming for the top, four that I'm aiming for the bottom, and two that I'm aiming to for for uh, interesting, to, lively discussion. There we go, yeah. So number three of uh, most shittiest, objectively, this is this is not opinion, this is objective fact. Mm. We, d- we did the science. It's a big mess by Danny Elfman. My man. Uh, the second worst album of all time is 10 by Pearl Jam. Congrats on being uh, the second worst album from the 90s. Good on them. Even out of 90s, they're the worst. Congrats. Uh, and then the worst album of all time is Wasteland Baby by Hoisier. And just like, that's going to take a lot to to top that, I think. We oh. might do it, though. We might do it, though. I'm sure there's a way. You know what? Based on some of the stuff that I, I, I've i seen on the list of uh, recommendations from both of us and our listeners, which you can uh, recommend albums to us at any time at any of our social media, I think I think we can bump it out of the bottom. All right. So that was Loveless by My Bloody Valentine. That was a, that was a, that was an album. It truly was. Yeah. Uh, We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back with uh, Let It Die by Feist. Jared's band's going to be playing some music at a New Year's Eve party, and I, I might be taking some pictures, and there might be some video being taken of you guys, and it's going to be exciting. Yeah, uh, we're not uh, we're not nervous at all. Why would you be? You're only uh, opening a venue. Yeah, it's the it's the, the See, actual opening, the hard open. We're one, uh, not the soft open, but the hard open. We're trying to have a song uh, finished and. Uh, up on uh, the music streaming services by New Year's Day. Like, we're trying to have, mm. like, the premiere, like, right. we're on stage New Year's Eve, like, right, right. at midnight, our new song drops. Yeah, it's like, check it uh, out, y'all. We're also premiering a new song, like, that we've never played live before. Ooh. Uh, we've o- we only played it live once, and it was at uh, the the Cannabis Club for the, for the two... Uh, I will be asking older questions. Older women who were who were present for it. I will be asking uh, questions after this because I You've never was, heard it. I, I was not one of those two older women at the cannabis club, <laughs> unfortunately. Um but you know you know what some older women would definitely listen to? Uh Let It Die by Feist. Some older yeah. some older women would definitely yeah, listen to totally. our the second album we will be talking about today, Let It Die by Feist. Uh, an album that rele- was released May 18th in 2004. Uh, it was... Uh, I was 10 years old. Yes, congratulations. <laughs> uh, 
this was the second studio album that Feist has uh, released. So the people on this album that I was able to find was Leslie Feist, name of, um, on guitar, vocals, and general artist mm-hmm. was how they were listed, was featured artist, part of Associated Artist Act. Right. The artist. Um <laughs> Chili Gonzalez was a piano and then various instruments, which Chili Gonzalez is a great name. It's a great name. Also, Canadian rapper. Oh, all right. Hip hop artist, beat producer um, in, you know, the early thousands, which Leslie Feist, also Canadian. I didn't know that. Yeah. Grew up in Nova Scotia. Wow. Yeah. Um, Julian uh, Chirol uh, did trombone and Frederick. Uh, Kudrek did saxophone right. on this album. That's the listed artist. That's the full list of. That's the full list of artists. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. Uh, so Leslie Feist. Uh, this is a solo project for Leslie Feist because they are part of Broken Social Scene, which is one of the big. How did I not fucking know that? Yeah. Yeah, they were. They are one of the rotating vocalists on Broken Social Scene, and they were recording. Um, I forget which Broken Social Scene album, but they were recording uh, the 2004, one of the big Broken Social Scene uh, (laughs) albums during when the recording of this, because that's why they were in Europe. They were touring and recording um, Broken Social Scene stuff at the time. So Uh tell me tell me more about um, why you had such an extreme reaction to not knowing that Leslie Feist was a vocalist for Broken Social Scene. Uh, Because I want to consensually kiss Leslie Feist on the mouth? (laughs) No, it just seemed like maybe you were... Because there's a multitude of people out there in the world. We'll just call them music fans Uh um, who think Broken Social Scene is a fantastic band and one that everyone should listen to. Yeah, no, that... They're... I've never really listened to them. Uh, I'm aware that they exist. I'm sure that I've heard a couple of their songs. Um, but I have listened to and own all of Feist's albums. Mm, okay. Uh, and yeah, I guess I've just never looked into Feist the person. Right. Only yeah. only Feist the artist, uh, the solo artist. Yeah. No. Um. So one of the, I th- personally I think I I'm, I'm there was not a whole lot of information released around Feist as a solo artist because Canadian musician. Um. To start off with the Canadian music scene is very like insular to mm. a degree. Like there are bands that are super big in Canada that us Americans have no fucking idea about. Like the tragically hip, one of the um, main people died like two or three years ago mm-hmm. and it was a big fucking deal to Canadian musicians. And uh, me, at least an American music fan is like, I've never heard of the tragically hip, mm. but apparently it's like a quintessential Canadian rock like institution. Right. Um, so there's a bunch of that kind of stuff, which I didn't know broken social scene. Well, was you know, they're Canadian all the way band. at the other end of the continent. You know, that is true. <laughs> they're so far North from us. Um, so, but, um, Leslie Feist, when they were part of broken social scene, they weren't allowed to play guitar on any of their albums because who the de facto band leader was just like, no, we already have guitar like taken care of. We don't mm. need you to play guitar. We just need you to add vocals. Um, so I'm assuming one of the reasons why Leslie Feist had, has solo work is to have a little more 
creative control over right. songwriting, song creation, and stuff like that, rather than just be just being a vocalist. Um, which I looked into it, and apparently, Broken Social Scene is just a collection of artists that get together every now and then and release albums, and it doesn't really matter who's part of it. It's just part right. of this big collective, and they're they're apparently one of the big baroque pop which is a a genre of pop that is very focused in old style musicality experimental music but still within the pop genre right and and whatnot um so this album was recorded in paris during touring for broken social scene Mm. um the original there's so there's seven seven ish six seven songs on this album that are originals and the rest are covers Mm -hmm. um those were originally recorded at home by Leslie, um, and she called them the Red Demos, but th- those versions of the songs have never been released to the public. Damn. So she recorded them, took them with her to Paris, and recorded the new versions of them, and recorded some covers, and that's what this album is comprised of. Um, it's very heavily influenced by lounge jazz, Baroque pop, mm-hmm. folk, uh, kind of traditional French jazz as well, mm-hmm. a little bit of bossa nova as well, samba, and all that stuff. Um, and there's so many different versions of this album that have been released because it's a Canadian pop artist. So, of course, Canada gets their own version, and then the rest of the world gets their own version, and there's mm. deluxe versions and all this different stuff. Right. So the version we're going off of is the U.S. and U.K. release, um, original release, which is the one that's on Spotify. And that's kind of all I was able to find yeah. on the album because it is, again, Canadian music artists do not get a whole lot of press coverage, right. which is surprising to me, especially on an album like this which is so musically diverse, so mm-hmm. sultry lounge jazz, like cocktail bar full of well, smoke. It, see, that's part of what's so great about it is that it goes so effortlessly between that to like a uh, very like uh it's a very tender album overall to me. Yes. Which is which is uh I not an adjective that I use lightly. Um it's got a very sort of, uh, I don't know. It all fits. It's very soft. It's a very, very soft, very intimate album. You need me to, oh, oh, oh. Josh is handing me a beer because he's realized that I'm I'm empty. Exactly. Uh, what was I trying to say? It's, yeah, it's extremely musically diverse because it effortlessly goes between that sort of lounge jazz, which I hate that term, but it's very accurate. Yeah. It it's certainly describes a good portion of the tracks on this album, but it goes between that sort of lounge jazz, uh, uh, Latin jazz inspired stuff uh, to these very uh, tender, very intimate, uh, like indie folk uh, solo singer songwriter style st- things, right? Um, and it, and, but it all works together really well, and mm-hmm. it sort of shapes this, uh, like it, it, it just has this overall feeling of, uh, like being wrapped in a warm blanket mm-hmm. with a cup of tea, uh, in winter. 
but not in the way that Eons does. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> in, in in more of uh in more of a sort of uh, a mild winter. Yeah, a mild winter, an enjoyable winter, not not a soul searching, <laughs> uh, uh, life bridging, uh, existentialist winter. sort of thing, but more in sort of a. Yeah. Uh, Hey, life's all right. Yeah. Life life really is all right sometimes. Yeah. Um I I said I would want to listen to this equally at like a cocktail bar and then also sitting on the couch with someone that you love. Like it fits yeah. both of those moods so well, which is a incredibly high praise cuz those are two different worlds. Yeah. That um I think this is also a high watermark for solo vocal work that we've had so far like her voice is fantastic she's such a good singer and like do you know about the term singing in cursive no tell me about it so so this this is a thing and i'll i'll get you more informed about it after we finish recording but uh basically there's Gen Z started making fun of uh, millennial indie artists by saying that the way they sing sounds like singing. Like the the way the difference between print and cursive is the difference between singing in a normal voice and the way uh, specifically female indie folk artists sing (laughs) or indie pop artists. Um, And she does. (laughs) You know that that sound is specifically because they are so right. Yeah, that's well. That's and the thing you can't deny it. If you deny it, then you, me <laughs> you're just lying to that yourself. The youth are correct. Uh, you crotchety old man. No, uh, we need to listen to Gen Z more. But also, like, goddamn, that's insulting. Um, I don't remember what even got. Oh, her voice. Her voice is phenomenal. Um, and she definitely. Uh, while I wouldn't say that Feist sound. Uh, you've been using uh, non-binary pronouns up to this point. Uh, I believe she, her. Okay. I, be- I I haven't seen anything different, but I haven't seen anything in the affirmative. affirmative uh, so. uh, welcome to Tape Makers. We assume genders. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we try not to, but we're too cis, yeah, straight, I, I, white I've, I've only I've only ever seen Feist referred to as she, her pronouns, and so I was like, unless you found something that I don't know about. No. Um, okay, so... Yeah, her voice is phenomenal, and while like it certainly fits within that overarching uh, identity of cursive singing, uh, she does not uh, commit that atrocity nearly no. as uh, egregiously no, 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 no. as a lot of her peers. I think this is a vocal performance that fits more within a this is what you want a jazz singer yeah. to sound like, plus the start of the indie folk very pretend soulful yeah. I, I think um and i think there's even without directly acknowledging this as an influence i think this is a very influential album on how indie pop indie folk um alternative pop rock yeah female vocalists would sound for the next decade plus yeah i always uh Every once in a while, I double check when this album came out because I because 2004 f- still feels so early to me for this album. Yeah, no, this is definitely ahead of its time. Um, I, I someone I was listening to this with uh, compared it to early Regina Spector as well. Yeah, totally. Which I, I am just like, yeah, no, that totally makes sense. This is and it it 
in uh, like part of why I love this album um is that uh like that that era of of like early to mid 2000s uh specifically female vocalists um like that sort of that sort of sound that sort of genre singer songwritery indie folk indie pop from from the early 2000s is like uh extremely comforting to me right yeah uh, like in in a to to a sickly sweet degree like i like i can for fully sure, acknowledge sure. that uh definitely certain parts of this album certain regina specter songs mm-hmm. uh where it's like yeah this is this is hard candy this is this is like uh really very sweet very kind of overly sweet uh presentation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. even if the lyrics aren't necessarily oh no there in the yeah. same manner uh but I, I I just always enjoy it. Well, I I think part of it also is for people our age, which is you know mid to late twenties. Mm-hmm. Most of the stuff from the early to early mid thousands, yeah, that we listened to when we were in our formative years, right? Which would be you know let's say oh nine to thirteen, yeah, roughly. Oh yeah, that's our nostalgic stuff. Like that's- yeah, that's yeah. Um, all the stuff that was good was able to stand the test of time from the early thousands. Yeah. It's also like, you know, that was the last time we felt any hope for the future. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fair. <laughs> like, um, like that was the last time we actually could enjoy sickly sweet music. And, exactly. And, yeah. Like purely unironically or, or, or without any sort of twinge yeah. of, uh, but escapism. Like, yeah. But like, there's a reason why we, you know, um, We'll get to this eventually later, probably within the the podcast. But like, there's a reason why bands that like um, like Paramore don't really do anything for me uh-huh. is because it just kind of sounds like everything else and doesn't really do anything special. Uh-huh. But there are other people who are our age who like live and die by that, right? Whereas you know something like this See, sounds timeless in in a sense, even though it's from the same general. Um, realm of musical era mm-hmm. like this has a very this would if this if someone would have told me like yeah no this is like a remaster of a um, jazz singer from like the late 50s I'd been like yeah of course it is why why wouldn't it be hmm. I, don't, um, I don't know if I'd agree with that I like to me like like I said 2004 sounds early for this album to me like this uh this feels like a mid to late two thousands uh, mm. indie pop album. I I um I guess you're right, but I think for me when it comes to like it, I mostly when I'm thinking of vocals and vocal quality, right? Like her vo- her voice. Yeah, she certainly has is, a timeless voice. It's a very timeless voice. Um, and the way that she meshes her voice with a very classic lounge lounge blues lounge jazz singing voice like Mm -hmm. i just imagine a movie of a somewhere in france with everyone smoking cigarettes out of the long cigarette holders right and the room just has this level of smoke that you can't really see through like that's what i hear when i hear her voice in some of the 
at least um, musical melodies that they choose to play alongside it, even though the instrumentation is a lot more, as you said, um, early early tens. Yeah. Um. I. Well. See, I I agree with that to to a certain degree, but I don't think her voice. I don't think she leans too heavily into that sort of uh, sonic aesthetic. Uh, that sort of that sort of vocal aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Um, because well, for one thing, I think that you can sound too much like that to the point where it's tacky. Right. No, um, for sure. It, like it's it's uh, that's why I hate the term lounge jazz because mm. like uh i don't know that it, like like dive rock is like a good like like Yacht a good rock. analogy you know what i mean like right, yeah. like dad rock yeah like it, like dad rock but like specifically it's like the yeah this sounds like a rock band that would play at a dive bar right uh like i get what you're saying like yeah. that doesn't really imply a good connotation for the level of music that it is right no for sure i get what you're saying i get what you're saying um, well, let's get let's get into the tracks, yeah, and then we can dive deeper into where this kind of lands and all that different stuff. Uh, obviously, we're gonna start with Gatekeeper, which is a lovely start and one of my favorite tracks on the album. Yeah, it's uh, so simple, but her voice just carries. Yeah, very sparse instrumentation. Yeah, no, it's it's just her voice, guitar, and then a small amount of either keys or th- synth or something. During yeah. the, the chorus bit of it. It's better to bask in each other. Gatekeeper seasons wait for your nod. Gatekeeper, you held your breath, made the summer go on and on. Well, they tried to stay in from the cold and the like this this track is just so small and so intimate. Yeah. Uh I think a good part of that is the way the acoustic guitar is is tracked. It, it's it, it's yeah. got a little bit of bedroom demo quality to it. Um mm-hmm. where it's uh it's left very uncompressed and it's left uh like it's very it's very dynamic and very quietly strummed. Yeah. And not mixed super loud, and it sounds like she's strumming with her fingers versus yeah. With a no, pick. There, there's definitely not a pick on that. It or also, nails. Yeah, it 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 sounds like it was recorded with a microphone that is about three feet away from the sound hole because yeah. it's an acoustic that doesn't have a pickup on it. Yeah. Um, and they also wanted to get the room reverb onto the same mic. Um, it is just pretty. Um, also. Lyrics matter a little bit more, I think, on this album than the last album, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, for certain. For, <laughs> for, for hunch certain. <laughs> um, so what I pulled was, uh, well, they tried to stay in from the cold and wind, making love and making their dinner, only to find that the love that they grew in the summer froze. So this is an entire song about like yeah. summer love that people then tried to extend into something longer than what it was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. There's, um, there's a a few songs on this album that are about sort of lost love or past relationships. A um, surprising amount of the original work is that. Yeah. Uh, and there, uh, it's 
the track list is is laid out so well that it doesn't become tedious Not how much all, yeah. how much she sings about that sort of thing mm-hmm. um and also, you know, talking about lyrics specifically, some of the some of the lyrics, while not necessarily being um, particularly uh, in par- particularly intellectual or or like, oh, I never thought about it that way, or like I like offering something incredibly mm-hmm. new or novel. Not a Father John Misty lyric, uh, right? It's it's uh, incredibly emotive. And, and uh, I, I feel like the lyrics uh, draw the emotion out of the listener that they are meant to, uh, which is really cool. It is the antithesis to 10 by Pearl Jam. Oh, my fucking God. In the fact that it is uh, very simple lyrics, but... They, they're, they're not overreaching. That's not, the thing. Yeah. And, and it, it conveys exactly the emotion that it needs to yeah. and doesn't do any more or any less. Which is honestly, I feel like you could pull out that whole statement and, and apply it to this whole album. Where mm. Oh, 100 percent. This yeah. album is never, never more than it needs to be. And it's never trying to do something that it can't. Yeah, 100 um, percent. And I think one of the reasons why lyrically it doesn't overbear you with the idea of lost love is because of the next song, uh, Musha Boom. Which yeah. is a every uh every 2010 uh teenage indie indie girl yeah, yeah, uh yeah. with a with a Tumblr's uh cottagecore dream. Yeah. Uh, oh, 100%. Yeah. As well as mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is a a reference to Shaboom by the Chords, which is a classic um do uh doo-wop um song from the 50s. Mhm. Um, and then also Mushaboom, which is a small town in Nova Scotia, close to where she grew up. Oh, cute. Yeah. I actually uh, have <laughs> never looked up the meaning of the, of the word. I was just like, yeah, Mushaboom. I don't, I don't even need to know. Yeah, it's... Um, I agree with it, whatever it is. Yeah, it's uh, it's very musically complex, I think, for for what they have going on there. Especially the fact that there is there are drums in this song. Yeah, this is definitely but, one of the more... Uh, like, there's a lot more going on. Uh, both musically and in terms of instrumentation than anything else on the album, probably. Talk to the neighbors and tip my cap on Little Rock Valley on my Having so much going on in terms of intru- instrumentation um, and musicality, it still fits so well into the album. It still yeah. has a very intimate feeling, a very a very close and and quiet and gentle sort of nature to it. That's so ugh, it ju- it just perfectly hits mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. point. hundred percent, yeah. And I think this is why I said like it feels like it. If you told me like it's a remastered, reimagined like nineteen fifties album, mm-hmm. I'd be like, yeah, of course it is, because it's a very classic chord structure, very classic two step like um, bass line as mm-hmm. well. Which again, really good, really, really good, good bass. bass work. Um, which is more of a you know mo- mostly played out on the piano. 
Um, but the bass is still there. And also there is drums in there, but you can barely hear the drums because mm-hmm. it is so well hidden and, and mixed in with everything there. Well, there, the only thing that matters rhythmically is the clapping. So. Exactly. <laughs> um, there is one um, snare fill, drum fill, um, dr- uh, snare roll during it as well, which fits in so well because then it, that's when everything starts to pick up a little bit uh-huh. as well. Um, and this entire song is just... Jazzy is very fun. There's really good horns in it as well. Um, and banjo. And banjo, yeah. Um, and it's just an entire song about like living in a small town that you know everyone in this same yeah, place. Well, well I mean, yeah. specifically, it's about, uh, it's about living in a, uh, a crowded urban area and wanting to and dreaming about someday escaping and buying a, a a house a home in a more isolated area and and uh have you know having a dirt road that goes out yeah, to yeah. your house and you can uh you know you you have to go down this dirt road to get to get to the market to get yeah. your food and like you 100%, know yeah no the the lyrics i pulled on this one was i got a man to stick it out and make a home from a rented house and we'll collect the moments one by one. I guess that's how the future's done. How many acres, how much light, tucked in the woods and out of sight. Talk to the neighbors and tip my cap on a little road barely on the map. Yeah. Just I, like so pleasant, so it, so yeah, pure. Uh, uh, pastoral is is the word. Cottage core. <laughs> Cottage core as fuck. Cottage core as um, fuck. This, this is probably the song that i would point to the most as like yeah this is like a sickly sweet like this is oh, like yeah. a very very like this uh, is a th- in terms of like it's very over the top in terms of like d- the the uh pastoral uh pleasant descriptions it's mm-hmm. it's like hobbiton in the oh, lord 100%. of the rings you know what i mean um, um for a very 2020 reference this is what everyone d- created their animal crossing uh, New Horizons Island. Right. This is, this is this is what you, this is the aesthetic of your Animal Crossing village. Like, exactly. But uh, but, it's but so, it works. Yeah. Like, it's so good. I like I shamelessly love this song. Uh, oh no! Despite, despite knowing that it's uh, bullshit. Yeah. And I think that anybody who would listen to this song and be like, I can't fucking take this seriously, is just somebody I'm not interested in talking to. <laughs> there are people who take themselves too seriously. Yeah. Um, and then. I want to talk about the next song as well, because I think this is a good... The first three songs also, I think, are are so expertly laid out because it shows you the entire range of what the entire album is going to be. Yeah, totally. Where you have this very intimate, very small, very um, close song right. with the start. Um, and then you have a very fun, very full of instrumentation, interesting yeah. layers, and, and a little bit... Devil may care. Uh, not uh, not, not necessarily bamba- bombastic, but mm-hmm. but uh, as as cacophonous as this album gets. Yeah, and then you have "Let It Die," which is the title track, um, and it's dark and it's moody and it's very jazz singery. I wouldn't call um, it dark. In context of this album, it's dark. <sighs> See, i th- I think that this is a very. Uh, I think that this is a song about progress. I think that this is a song about finally accepting what happened and moving forward despite it. I think dark specifically comes from the instrumentation. Like it's a darker, more dour instrumentation uh, that is happening, not lyrically per se. It won't 
is the first time I've made the connection, but it, it reminds me on why people like Amy Winehouse so much mm-hmm. of just like this very raw, very emotional, like a little bit of gruff to the voice. Yeah. But, where you can kind of, you can mm-hmm. feel the emotion through yeah. the voice, not just, not just because of the notes or the words, but because of the delivery. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, again, it, it's where the drums for the first time are really used, but again, it's very laid back. It's a very laid back drum um, baseline for the entire thing, right? Well, I think I think it's just a a, a sample, like it's uh, just a programmed. Oh yeah, thing. no, it, it probably is, but it's so expertly put in. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the uh, the instrumentation in general, it's so sparse and mm-hmm. so, um, like so much of the song is quiet. Mm-hmm. There's like that little bit of organ that just comes in during the chorus. Oh, it's, so it's it's just there, and it's and it just is enough to to. I don't know. There there are so many very quiet, mm-hmm. small layers added, and and the vocal layers that uh, they add in of of her singing on top of herself, or right. in in complement complementing uh, the main vocal line, so well done. And then also just lyrically again. Very, very basic, very to the point, but very impactful lyrics. Uh-huh. Um, the saddest part of a broken heart isn't the ending so much as the start. The tragedy starts from the very first spark, losing your mind for the sake of your heart. Yeah. Just like so simple, but also just like is exactly what this song it's, needed it's effective. to be. Yeah. yeah. And, and see, that's the thing. Like I... You don't always need lyrics that are extremely poignant and extremely uh, innovative. What's the word? I'm yeah, innovative. I guess mm-hmm. uh, they don't need to be like the greatest lyrics of all time to convey the emotion that you're trying right. to convey. Um, and I and I mean I I will say that these lyrics. Uh, isolated from the music are not something that I would that I would look at and be like this is good lyricism right. I would look at it and go like this is okay lyrics like this is like you know this is the kind of stuff that I wrote as a teenager maybe right. but like uh, but in the context of the music within the actual songs for which the lyrics are written it's so effective and it works so well it's the opposite of Father John Misty last week for you which if right. you took the lyrics away from the music, you'd be it, like, holy shit, what innovative, impactful lyrics. And then you listen to the music and you're like, oh, okay, well, why did Right, why did and it's literally detracting stuff? from the emotional content. of Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's literally exactly the opposite. Yeah, it's the inverse of that, yeah. Um, what do you want to talk about next? Um, well, <laughs> we sorry, got, let me see the checklist. No worries, yeah. we got One Evening, Leisure, Sweet, uh, Lonely, Lonely, When I Was a Young Girl. Uh, let's talk about Leisure Suite. Okay, yeah. Um, th- I think it's the most Boston Over Lounge song on the album. Uh, I think it's the sexiest song on the album. Ooh. I don't. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's definitely the most sort of lounge singer song on the album. Great when you're 
getting close up the moment we woke up. Josh is over here giving me the eyes. <laughs> well, I mean, the entire song is about like, hey, I'm in my, uh, I'm in the place where I, I take people to, and take people to my leisure suite. Yeah, no, I mean. it's, it's, yeah. it's a very oh, wanna... straightforward song <laughs> in terms of what she's trying to say. Um, yeah, I, I think it hits it hits all the good notes for me. It's like laid back in the right ways. Right. And see, that's I think that uh, I think this is a good example of like where I f- sort of disagree with the characterization of of her voice being very kind of lounge singer, mm. and so that sort of style um, is that even when she's singing these sort of uh not melismatic, but uh, malaise, uh, okay. uh, sort of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Malaise is almost right. I'm just going to use malaise. These sort Go of malaise, it. sort of uh, uh, bluesy, soulful notes but the delivery of those notes is still with still sort of within this sort of uh bedroomy mm. uh sort of indie folk indie pop I see what you're like saying. you know what i mean yeah no it's, i see what you're saying she she never really does the sort of uh, like she ne- she never does the vocal vocal characterizations that i think of when i think of somebody right it's it's way more intimate than a traditional like lounge singer which is a which little is more perfect for this song yeah 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 <laughs> um and i also like the fact that it's com- two completely different vocal tracks as well mm-hmm. um for the verse from what i found online the verse and the chorus is what people called it um but the, you know, between the um, saying what I want you to do and then, you know, the vocal line of like, and then it's the leisure suite on, on, on the background, you know, like, I think that also helps with it because mm-hmm. um, it, it does have a a touch of Motown production wise of having the main vocal line and then having a, a backing vocal line kind of repeating call and response. Call and response. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh- uh yeah, I was actually just about to bring up the production because uh that's the other thing is that this is this is like the most uh lounge jazz song I feel well, like. I mean it's called uh Yeah, it's called Leisure Suite. But, <laughs> Leisure but, Suite so. but when you listen to the instrumentation, when you when you actually listen to what's going on mm-hmm. musically here, um there's very little resemblance to that sort of right. genre. It's it's just the um bass sample and how they're playing the the it's, tempo and rhythm of of playing it that's that's all that's and the and it's the reference. notes that she decides to sing yes uh, no 100 percent. and and i think that's part of what i love about this album is that it sort of touches that that um that sort of sound that sort of aesthetic yeah that bossa nova lounge but without just being that yeah um it borrows from it without but but drastically changes a lot of other things about it all right, yeah. So uh, the next one I want to talk about is <sighs> what's the next one you want to talk about, Josh? Uh, so I think the next one I want to kind of talk about is "Lonely and Lonely," which is also the last original on the album. Everything after this is going to be covers. I didn't know that. Yeah, everything else is is covers, and so I can talk through, you know, if we feel like we need to talk about stuff, who, which cover it is. Um, but yeah, so "Lonely and Lonely" is a very different feeling song. 
Um, I really do like it, but also it's the folk song on the album, so duh. Right, of course you like it. (laughs) Um, Again, it's very sparse instrumentation, uh, letting her voice do most of the work Mm -hmm. on it as well, which I think is a very... uh, I think that's why I also like it so much. Distance makes the heart grow weak So that the mouth can barely speak Except to those who hide their need And I have read the golden seal That tells of how the seedlings feel That kind of build in the middle is, mm-hmm. is different than a lot of the rest of the song, but I think it's done really, really well because it's a song that is full of small emotions. Yeah, for sure. It's a very small song. Yeah. Um, uh, throughout the entire time. Like, like, uh, relating to minutia. Like, mm-hmm. it, it's, it, uh, <laughs> minutish. <laughs> Obviously, yeah. Uh, like, the, there are very minute changes in, uh, in energy, in, uh, emotional content. Maybe, maybe they'll stay true. My seeds will cross and then take root. And leave you to an empty room. Yeah, no, it's it's a very small, um, probably the most, not the most bedroom in sound, but the most bedroom in uh, emotional intimacy. Um, I think. Yeah, I like part of what I really enjoy about this album is that it feels like half of these songs she's singing to herself. Oh yeah, 100%. Um, this I... this one more so than any of the others, um, and that's uh, and when when like uh, I use I've used the word intimate a lot uh, on mm-hmm. this podcast. Generally, when I'm talking about when I'm saying a song is intimate, I'm talking about that level of like this isn't mm-hmm. about like uh like this this isn't about like romance between two people or or. Uh, or sexuality, it's it's like uh, personal, yeah, but being shared. So it is 100%. no longer as personal. Um, that's what I mean by intimate. And this this song yeah. for for sure is very much like uh, this. This feels like something that we're almost not supposed to hear. <laughs> right. Right. But somehow we are and she's okay with it and and so here we are yeah no um lyrics i i pulled out on this one was paper paper obsolete how will you reach out to me i thought you'd ask me not to leave lonely lonely that is me lonely lonely that is me like just yeah it's a it's a song that it it feels more it feels like it's a note that is written between 
her and someone else mm-hmm. that then gets intercepted in the middle of class <laughs> and the teacher reads it out loud. Oh, uh, but not but not with that level of embarrassment or that no, level. Not, no, but, no, no, no. But that level of like, oh, we this was not supposed to be for the general public's consumption. Right. But it now it is. Um, it hits all the right emotional notes mm-hmm. for the entire song as well. It's it is be- it is beautiful. It is it is everything about it is is beautifully done. I really like the way the instrumentation follows the vocal melody as well mm-hmm. during it. Um, so yeah. So now we get into the cover, the covers. Yeah. Uh, uh, I definitely want to talk about inside and out. Okay. We'll talk about that. Um, I want to talk first about when I was a young girl, which is a, a cover of a, tra- a very traditional song, um, but mostly made famous by Texas Gladden in 1942. Uh, it's a song about a woman on her deathbed, um, who's dying of the Black Plague? Brutal. Yeah, and and talking That's metal about metal like, as fuck. It metal is <laughs> metal as fuck. Yeah. So the all of the lyrics are about you know when she was a young girl and she would go out drinking and then parents being around her and then the um, doctors coming in to like sit give her her last rites mm-hmm. and you know the priest giving her last rites and then the last verse is talking about. Um, I walk by and see a young girl in white sheets. Mm-hmm. And that, and that's the last verse, like t- talking about like her dying from the plague. Um, I think the the bass, the hand, the hand drum, whatever the um, hand drums that they do use, I believe it's just basic, like Congo, like uh, hand drum. I, I don't I know if you have I can't a picture right now. Well, I'm gonna yeah, play get, it get for a little you. play. Give it a little spin there, Josh. Spin, spin that record, DJ. Spin, spin the. Uh, get that wax burning. instrumentation on this one it, it's um, so fantastic it fits her voice so well and then um the clip that i played the way that uh all that instrumentation that they were building up drops away and it's just the the clapping and a little bit of hand drum going on right. until she ends the verse and then that guitar which is that's one of the one of my favorite guitar tones we've heard so far yeah i i've thought about it before it's uh it, it I hope that I'm right in this being what it is. Right. But it sounds like a distorted resonator to me. Ooh. Uh, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it could very easily be like a, a cocked wah or, or just like a heavily EQ'd like uh, low mids uh, and some highs. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I. Uh, it sounds like a resonator that, that was uh clipping or that they uh sent the take through yeah. an amp or that they that somebody put a pickup in and it sounds good plugged it into an amp or so, it, I don't it's know it's very uh midwest midwest america yeah. sound and the uh the uh the overdriven organ 
Oh, so uh, when it comes back yeah. in from that dropout. Mm-hmm. Uh, so and good. nothing is mixed like this. Is the, the production is so good on this album, in my opinion. Yeah. And part of that is that uh, nothing. Nothing feels loud in this album. And I don't and I don't mean mm-hmm. that like uh, there are albums where things feel too loud and and uh, like like I don't mean. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that nothing in relation to anything else is mixed improperly being too loud or too quiet. Right. But at the same time, nothing in this album feels loud, even if you listen to it (laughs) loudly. It is very reserved in the way that all the instrumentation is is mixed together. Nothing is standing out too much. Right. Um, but also there's a lot of dynamic range within it. You know, it's it's a very different production to Loveless. <laughs> you know, like there is there is so much dynamic range in all of the instrumentation and all the vocal work as well, but it's also a very, very small sound um ceiling, it feel it feels like. Right. But nothing feels tamped down because of it. It, it is so well done. Yeah. Um the only other thing I want to say before we hit inside out. Mm-hmm. is that Secret Heart is a cover by a Canadian singer-songwriter who is very popular, but only in Canada, because Canada music, that's what happens. Right. Uh, his name is Wrong Sexsmith. Moving on. <laughs> Inside uh, Out, it's a cover of the Bee Gees. I didn't know that. Yeah, so it's a Bee Gees song. Um, well, I'm sure that Feist's version is better. Probably, um, but you can definitely hear the disco... Um, then that, and that's why I love I love disco. I love this song. just to not let that entire song play right. honestly uh, uh that that um firstly uh i think that this is the most uh uh full band sound that we've gotten since oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. boom 100 uh yeah. which is uh, one i don't think that I, I don't think that either of these albums could be included uh if uh, sorry, I don't think that either of these songs could be included in this album without the other. Uh, oh, interesting. Okay, yeah, I see what you're saying. Like, I think that either one would be too much of, a, of an outlier without mm-hmm. the other. Um, I see what you're saying. And I... L- yeah, this is just one of my favorite tracks on the album, because it's it's, really it's, su- it's super enjoyable. It's a bop. Uh, it's sa- It still sounds like Feist, knowing now that it's a cover. Like, I mean, well... I've never heard the Bee Gees version, so it, I honestly I, I redact that statement because that's <laughs> bullshit, right? Um, but no, I know what you're saying. Um, I think it does a great job of keeping it disco. Like you can definitely tell that this is a disco song, that right? Thought, but it's a disco song within the context of "Let It Die" by Feist, right? Like it is still the same instrumentation. It is still the same 
Also, and everything. Yeah. Side note: If I was ever to do drag, this is one hundred percent the first song that I would oh, ever perform. Hell yeah! <laughs> um, also, I just wrote down like this just proves that like the Bee Gees are such talented songwriters. Put them on your list. Honestly, though, <laughs> yeah. Um, the way that they made the changes from a very traditional disco. Late 70s disco, specifically Bee Gees disco, mm-hmm. to what Feist is on this album, mm-hmm. but keeping it still within the same realm. Like, specifically the bass that they chose, fantastic, good mm-hmm. bass. We good stand, bass. we stand a good bass. Um, just like the way that she sings the vocal quality, which again, like it's a cover, so she's singing the same stuff that the Bee Gees wrote, but the way she goes about it in the register, she hits it in because the Bee Gees from everything I've heard, is mostly high falsetto male vocals. Right. (laughs) Like, very, like, oh, this is what, like, um, Saturday Night Fever John Travolta, like, dances to in a white suit type thing. Um, But they do a great job of of just every single instrumental choice that they make is the right one to make Mm -hmm. for this uh, disco song. Um, Do you want to talk about either of the last two after this? Um, I'm trying to remember what the last track is. Uh, now at last. Um, I, it's, it's good. It's one of the more forgettable tracks for me. Yeah, no, that's um, fair. But it's, but it is like a good, uh, uh, end to the album. It's a very stan. it's, it's a jazz standard song, mm-hmm. you know, like it's a, it's a forties, fifties Americana, um, Written, it's a cover of a song by Bob uh, Hames, who has a song in the Great American Songbook. You know, like he's he's. It's one of the classics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's a nice and classy way to end the album. It's it's very pretty, but you know, there's not really a whole lot besides that. And then, um, uh, Tu Dosame is a you know f- cover of a classic French jazz as well, and mm-hmm. it's. Basically, just a, it's a pretty love song. It, it translates to you know, so soft, so so sweet, you know, mm-hmm. all, all that stuff of just like you want to, you just want to be wrapped up in in the arms of your lover type right. thing. And it's just a, it's a lovely cover. And so, and there's also some fun background that they use in that song as well, but yeah. nothing too uh, specific that I feel like we need to talk about. But yeah, it's just like. Also, this album is over so quick. It is a it's a thirty seven. It, it definitely minute, feels yeah. like it ends quick. Yeah, it's a thirty seven minute long album, and I I like the fact that it leaves me wanting to listen to more rather right. than just being like, oh god, can we finally end this? Yeah, which is a nice change of pace considering you know the last three or four albums right. we've talked about. <laughs> um, so let's see what some people at the time thought of the album. Um, Mackenzie Wilson for All Music gave it four and a half stars out of five. Uh, the romance of City of Lights glows through out as a combination of folk, bossa nova, jazz pop, and indie rock finds its place among the 11 track song list. She'll woo you with her sultry vocals throughout, a delicate and sweet voice that feels cozy. From the warm, shimmery, and shake of Gatekeeper and Mushaboom to the classy R&B grooves of One Evening and Leisure Suite. Feist explores various musical worlds without getting lost. Yeah, that was a good review. Uh, Dave Simpson for The Guardian gave it three out of five stars and said, Alas, she doesn't seem to have settled on a direction. Flir- uh, 
Yes, flirting from unsettling d- desert blues to the Bee Gees disco stomper inside and out. All are f- preferable to the descent into music, Muzak, uh, which undermines this album. Maybe it works better in a wine bar. So he was not really a fan, and I don't get it, but... I can understand, like... Uh yeah, lounge jazz the that that phrase and Muzak are definitely fairly synonymous mm-hmm. in my mind, and I can understand somebody uh listening through this album and going like half of this is Muzak, right? And I'm not interested in that. Um, just it, for me personally, it it fucking works. I don't know, or I, the way she just pulls it off to me. Yeah, and I I think part of the issue. Is you know this is two thousand and four, where there hasn't been this like expansion of what music can be within yeah. acceptable pop culture, and like the Guardian is a pretty progressive newspaper writ large, mm-hmm. but a lot of their cultural commentary is still pretty conservative, right? For a liberal progressive newspaper overall, I think. Mm-hmm. So I think it makes sense that um, you know in two thousand four it's like oh it's 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 music it's lounge music we're like we've heard this before there's mm. so many covers like what's the point of it a little <laughs> bit so it, I think it makes sense um, and then Pitchfork um, Marty uh, p- uh, Pytat oh God I said this correctly before yeah uh, Pytlick Marty Pytlick for Pitchfork gave it an eight point one out of ten and said emblazoned with the jazzy guitar shapes. Droning vibes, crisp percussion, toothless synths, smoothed out samples, and feist slippery vocals. The music sloshes around the stereo channel like a liquid in a canister. It's no wonder, it's no wonder that despite her uh, protestation, reviewers have quite reasonably taken to call it Feist's French pop album. <laughs> Whether intentional or not, Let It Die shares all sorts of characteristics with our archetyp- archetypical vision of Paris. Whimsical, romantic, and adventurous are all adjectives that apply. Yeah, that's a good one. It feels it feels very Paris. Pa- <laughs> um, Whimsical. That's a good. That's it a is good a word. Vi- yeah. Um, but also, none of those people know shit about music because their rating doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, we're giving it the only rating that does matter. Uh, we're rating this out as eighteen. All right, and Jared. I'm I'm going to let you. Uh, rate it out of 18 first. Tell me what you're feeling. Out of 18. See, now we're getting into the scores where, like, we can get pretty, uh, pretty specific. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, I really do adore this album. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't, I wouldn't say, like, I wouldn't say it's a perfect album. I don't think that it, it, uh, while it does <clears throat> while it does hit very uh a very specific uh musical emotional spot for me um it's not something that nothing else can do or nothing else has done right um and it's not uh particular particularly profound that is true. Um, yeah. It's just not super common, um, and I appreciate it when when that sort of thing comes up. Right. Um, I 
uh, I, I want to give it, I want to give it a 16 out of 18. Okay. Okay. Um, I think this is an album that is rare to come across. Okay. I think an album that is this delicate mm-hmm. with this amount of care, um, and passion put into it. Mm-hmm. Cause you can tell that this is very important mm-hmm. music that is being done, even though it is kind of whimsical and care kind of carefree. It, it feels very important mm-hmm. to Leslie Feist. Intentional. Um, at the very very intentional. Yeah. And to find an album that does that, but isn't self-obsessed or self self-important self-important grandiose even mm-hmm. um the fact that it invites the, it's you the in, opposite of grandiose the anything. fact that it invites you in made a made a cup of coffee and wants you to kind of tell it tell it how your day has been yeah yeah um is special is this i think this is a special special album mm-hmm. um i think i agree with you that it definitely has some flaws it has some shortcomings um, I, I do think lyrically there could have been some better stuff in there. I think a few of the covers were not needed. I would have loved to hear a few more originals for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think a 16 out of 18 is a perfect score for this album. All right. Um, so with that, we got a top five shakeup. We got a top five shakeup giving it a 16 out of 18. That puts it right underneath pieces of a man. And right above Boarding House Reach, which I think if it goes any direction, it goes up. Yeah, I... But I, I See, personally think Pieces of a Man is a more complete musical experience. Where um, Let It Die is a very intimate, very, very personal, very... Yeah. The, emo- the emotional range of pieces of a man is definitely wider than yeah, than and the instrumentational range and the influence that it does have uh, upon broader music. I think pieces yeah. of a man is is much wider. Whereas I think I'm content with it being above Boarding House Reach. Yeah, no, I definitely like listen, fantastic album, but like it's been. I think it's it's it needs to be knocked off its perch you a know little what? bit. Content. That's probably the word I've been looking for this whole time. Mm, I, I think mm, this album mm. makes me feel content, right? And I think that's the the uh, emotion that is like it doesn't come up very often. There aren't there aren't a lot of albums or artists that make me feel content, and I appreciate it when it does. Right. Well, especially with the it does so much with so little. Right especially like the fact that you're able to feel so content with an album that is more or less just a, just a girl and her guitar, Mm -hmm. maybe a little bit of keys thrown in there as well, but like masterfully done, masterfully done. Um, yeah, I think below pieces of a man, but above boarding house reach sounds, uh, yeah, no, I, I, as correct as our list can be. (laughs) (laughs) You mean objectively, I mean, yeah, objectively correct. Pop her in. So that, that sorry, her pop. being the album <laughs> and in being the list. Let's <laughs> throw that motherfucker in there. All right, so we have a new top five after after this. So our our new top five is number one, 
Eons by Mimicking Birds. Mm. Number two, Pieces of a Man by Gil Scott Heron. New number three, Let It Die by Feist. New number four is A Boarding House Reach by Jack White. And the new number five is I Go Missing in My Sleep, uh, I Go Missing in My Sleep by Wilson. Bumped out of the top five is uh, The Beautiful Game by Wolfpack, which I think is very much deserved. I did not think it would be in the top five for that long. Yeah, uh, can't wait for get to, can't wait to get I Go Missing in My Sleep out of there. <sighs> better recommend better albums, bud. <laughs> I gotta adjust my list. <laughs> well, uh, for the next episode, it doesn't it doesn't matter what your list is, right? Because uh, next is episode ten, and every five episodes we do a friends and family yeah. episode. So we uh, pull from our lovely listeners, just like you. Um, for their recommendations on what we should do next. Jared, would you like to roll for our friends, or do you want me to do the honors? Do we only do one album on Friends and Family episodes? No, we do two, but uh, do you want to roll both of them, or do you want me to roll both of them? Or I figure we'd each roll one. Okay, cool. We'll each roll one, um, and so if we roll double, we'll just roll again. Yeah. Um, all right, so I am going to go first. Right, that is a two. So we are doing one recommended by my father. Excellent! I can't wait. <laughs> changes in latitudes, changes in attitudes by Jimmy Buffett. I've uh, never listened to Jimmy Buffett in my life, as far as I'm aware, and I uh, am so ready to crack that can right, right open, right, right on open. I am equal parts that a shotgun that bad boy. I'm equal parts sorry and excited. <laughs> I got a number one. You got a number one. All right. So that is uh, means we are doing uh, Dennis Was a Bird by Tom Rosenthal, recommended to us by Jacqueline. All right. And uh, Jacqueline is intensely excited to force you to listen to this album. Oh, man. I'm nervous. <laughs> Jacqueline wants to hear all of your takes and then yell at you on why you're wrong. Probably. <laughs> I look forward to that conversation. Uh, well, you know what? This is. I'm very excited for the next episode, which is probably not going to be recorded until 2022 because we're uh, yeah. busy as fuck. This is the last episode of the year. Yeah. So uh, thank you all for coming along for nine episodes. We started in August as just a way to as an excuse for us to hang out right. and talk music. And uh, it's been mostly fun. A little stressful. Had some ups, some downs. Some good <laughs> albums, some bad albums. Some mid a lot of Midland albums. A lot of Midland albums. Um, but overall, it's been a fantastic time. Um, as always, you know, you can find us online. You can find us on Instagram at Tape Makers Pod. Uh, that's the main way that we communicate through people. We're also on Facebook. If you want to share us with uh, people who are on Facebook and not on Instagram, um, you know, if you're getting ready for the meta metaverse to to take you over, uh, we'll be there, I guess. Um, Jared, just thank you. Thank you for this good time. Um, what do you got to say for us and, and, and for the people on the way out of this episode and out of 2021? Hey, uh, shit's hard. The world is full of suffering and we all ought to be trying to do our part to change it for the better, but it is okay to take moments and be content. Uh, shout out to Leslie Feist for making me feel content sometimes.
Now they can see too much of my legs. Now they know that I'm wearing fucking basic ass boots. <laughs> now they know. Now they know I'm a basic, Jared. The people have to know. The people have a right to know, Josh. No, the people should. Un- I, I'm the only reason we're doing this podcast is to trick the people into thinking that I'm a cool dude, not a basic dude. Ah, well, the people have a right to know, Josh. <laughs> You're not wrong. All right. Uh, speaking of the people, welcome back, people. 